Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Stratosphere Lounge, uh, best produced show on the Internet. And uh, as usual, another technically flawless launch from the uh, one-person uh, control panel here in uh, Los Angeles, California. Hope everybody's uh, doing well. It's good to see everyone. We're, uh, we're going live to YouTube and stream, and everything seems to be absolutely five by five, and, uh, and that's the standards we hold and expect here on the Stratosphere Lounge. Um, okay, so a uh, couple things to talk about. Uh, before we get rolling, and then we're going to do mostly Facebook questions tonight. Um, you may not know this, but just uh, yesterday I was uh, standing over there, and uh, the guys who have been hired from uh, Daily Wire, the guys I've worked with before, guys who used to be part of Daily Wire when it was in L.A., but who stayed in L.A. for reasons unknown, and, um, and so they stay out here and do contract work for Daily Wire, and they're going to be the ones doing the shooting and everything else for the... Uh, for the uh, Cold War video shoot, they're going to turn the Cold War podcast and the um, America's Forgotten Hero podcast into video, which is great. Uh, so uh, yesterday, they trundled on over at about two and rolled in one of those, you know, rollable clothes hanger things. And they brought in like 15 different tie clasps and four different watches and all this other stuff. And... Um, and so I don't know what I tried on. Probably tried on 15 or 16 outfits, which is not like particularly fun for men generally. However, um, ways that I can't get to that now. If you want to bring it in later, I just can't get to it now. It's a lot of typing. Um, so um, they brought in all these outfits. They had a stylist, had a tailor, and then uh, the two producers who I've worked with before. And they went to this uh, costume shop and said, uh, "Give us your your Don Draper look." So. Um, there we go. Uh, yes, Marusha, I got a chance to read that. I haven't had, I haven't had a chance to read it. I, I, I've got it. So can we just let me do a little talking here, and then we'll get to the questions. So um, anyway, uh, tried on all this stuff. And um, since it's essentially a used uh, clothing store, uh, some things would fit, some things not so much. And, um, and it was uh, a little challenging. With that said, uh, they, they ended up with 11 costumes that are just absolutely freaking wicked. Just wicked, 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 wicked cool. So 13 episodes, different outfit every day because these guys do things the right way. So um, they, were, uh, they were all watches from the um, early 60s. I don't remember the names of them, but they were sized for humans, you know. They were uh, small, a little bigger than about the size of a half dollar, maybe smaller, like a quarter. And they weren't, you know, this thick. You go to buy a watch today, it's it's that thick. So um, I don't even know if they were working watches or not, but they sure as hell look good. We even might, might even try a pocket watch. Um, anyway, uh, so um, that was fun. And then starting on Tuesday, uh, we're going to do seven days of shooting. Start after call times at 8 o'clock every day, seven consecutive days. And um, we're going to do two episodes a day. And then on the final day, we'll do one episode and kind of a season tease. So uh, we'll be happy to get that in the bank. And then once that happens, it goes to the post-production guys who are also going to be doing it here. And um, looking forward to working with them an awful lot. So there's that. Um, the other thing uh, is um, definitely more of a topic for Stress for Studios. So we'll talk about this on Monday. But since it happened yesterday, might as well just bring it up now for our longtime viewers here. Uh, so I was watching Critical Drinker's latest uh, review of the final episode of uh, Rings of Power. He said he was done with it on the penultimate episode, but 
he did a segment on this last night, uh, yesterday on this thing. And just as he's finishing, he says, I have, some, I have an additional sec section for you. I said, awesome. And, uh, and he said, um, you know, I've been, I don't, I don't want to just comment about movies. Uh, I want to actually make some. And I thought, oh, here it comes. Uh, and uh, sure enough, uh, he ended up making, and this was, this was at the tail end of a, of a review video. This was not a dedicated pitch video. Um, I'm getting calls to dress up for the Halloween episode. Is that on the 31st? I will do it. Um, anyway, so he, uh, oh, it's the Stratosphere Studios on Monday the 31st. You know, we usually spend that time at home because we have trick-or-treaters, but let me, let me talk to the boss about that. Anyway, um, so I, I look, and sure enough, uh, it's, um, it's a, I've got, I've started a, a GoFundMe page or a Kickstarter page or whatever to, in order to make movies. And he said, Drinker could use your help. And I'm thinking, okay, well, that's a, that's a, that's a, a an ace I had to um, play. Uh, and look, I am extraordinarily happy for him. I think this is the future. I think it's the future of everything. And I never did get a chance to talk to him about it. Uh, and maybe I won't ever get a chance to talk about him. But in any event, when I checked earlier today, I think they were looking for 23000 to do some kind of teaser trailer or something. Uh, get to 23000 and if you don't, then the money's returned. So last I checked, he was at 200000 And uh, this thing, I will, I say with a fair, fair amount of confidence, it's going to get to, well, you never really know. You, you really know in the first couple of days, but I wouldn't be surprised if it got to a, a million dollars. It'll certainly get into the mid to high uh, six figures. So good for him. Um, and I genuinely mean that. Uh, I could have said, oh, man, I was really counting on him. I'd never talked to him, and and certainly I had to put everything else on hold to get uh, to get back, like like we said last time, make a little money uh, in here. But with that said, um, I certainly wish him the best. I certainly hope it works, and um, and uh, and again, I think this is the future of of uh, entertainment because there are no more um, movie theaters, uh, there are no more uh, like one-stop destinations. Nobody's watching Friends all the time. And uh, and so since he since all the talent is distributed across the um, internet, mostly in the form of YouTube, makes sense that that's where um, things would go. You know, if if a guy like uh, Will Jordan uh, is has got a sharp enough uh, eye, ear, and tongue to generate you know a million subscribers, I suspect he's probably not a bad writer at all. And um, and it's and, and and in the same way as the colonies too. Uh, it's a very different model. You you come to the um, fundraising with a with a pre-existing audience. The uh, you actually gather the audience before you make the product, which is different, and which I uh, like an awful lot. And there's some other options we have in play too. So, anyway, the guys who I'm working with on the uh, Daily Wire thing are some guys I'm going to be working with on the um, uh, on the animation thing, which we will do as soon as I get these scripts and this shoot out of the way. But anyway, with all that said, um, I'm, I'm wishing him the very best. I'm certainly going to be watching closely and, um, and, uh, and hoping for the best. We've gotten a lot of questions about, I, I just mentioned tried on some watches and now we're getting loaded with watch questions. Uh, people ask what kind of, uh, what, what features do I have on my watch? Uh, none. This is a, Virtually positive. I don't want to. I don't want to be clowning myself. Yes, uh, this is a fossil 
watch and I got it in somewhere around 2006 or 7. The reason I like it is because it doesn't take up, you know, three stories of, of wrist space. It's just real simple, real simple. For the, we, we obviously have watch aficionados out there trying to get the glare off of it. Yep, just dark, dark gray with silver, and, and it, I've had it forever, and I love it. Okay, so um, uh, to warm us up for this, uh, like I said, we're doing Facebook questions, but I have had a, a kind of interesting experience the last couple of days. Uh, one of them was um, the people that invented uh, cocaine and nicotine, that same laboratory, has um, taken a look at what they put into uh, Instagram shorts and combined them to create these YouTube shorts, which are the end of civilization as we know it. Uh, it's... Oh, 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 it, it, it's really, really, really hard to get away from those, especially once they figure out what you like. So the uh, last couple days, I'd been looking at a lot of, um, I don't need, I, I have an aviation watch, thank you, uh, and, and uh, I fly, uh, I used to fly an airplane with 80 horsepower, Rotex, and there just wasn't enough energy to get the, me and the watch off the ground. Um, so uh, anyway, um, with all this said, I've completely lost my train of thought here. Once again, I looked at the comment section. That's a mistake when I'm when I'm doing this. Uh, oh yes, 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 yes. YouTube videos. So I ended up watching just tons and tons of shorts from Friends. Now here's the thing: I never watched Friends when it was on ever. I never watched a whole episode of Friends that I'm aware of. Nobody obviously know about it. I mean, it owned the '90s. It was it's. I think you can make a strong case that it's probably the, the most popular sitcom of all time. It's either Cheers, Friends, or, um, or Seinfeld, right? They're all three just excellent. And, um, and, and so I just watched a bunch of those, and it made me really, it didn't just make me nostalgic on a kind of, oh, those are the same sounds it used to make when I was a boy. It made me, it made me sad. Um, it made me sad because it made me so happy. Uh, it was, um, somebody just a second wrote MASH. Uh, MASH had its moments, but then MASH became like the very, one of the very first of these politically correct liberal bash you with the message kind of things. But uh, Seinfeld, Friends, and, um, and Cheers were completely apolitical. And that's what I loved about these clips. And I was just, and somebody mentioned All in the Family. All in the Family is a very political show. But these three... Uh, and I was watching a lot of friends are they're just plain fun and they're so innocent and everybody's so happy you know everybody's so happy and it really made me you know sad uh, and then uh, sometimes generally when I want a, a little cheering up I'll watch Foster Brooks again and and all of those treasures and all of those roasts and all of that camaraderie and goodwill and these giants you know Jimmy Stewart up there Orson Welles that kind of thing um, and I was looking at that, and that made me sad. And then, uh, a couple hours before I came in, um, I don't know what caused this. I was basically just working at home, and I just had a, a tune in my head. I said, what is that song? What is that? That's, um, that's Year of the Cat. That's Al Stewart, Year of the Cat. So I just trotted over to um, YouTube, because that's the easiest way for me to get the things. And, uh, and I fired up Year of the Cat. And and it it just is like, oh, oh, 
Now, there's two interesting things about this. Uh, the first one is that I went through this entire time period. I, I you know, graduated high school in 77. And so I know all of these songs really well. I've heard them 100 times. But for some reason, it's just got something to do with me and my brain. I know this is going to sound unbelievable, but I've, I've probably heard You're the Cat hundreds of times and, and, and Fleetwood Mac songs hundreds of times. All of this stuff I've heard hundreds and hundreds of times. But I swear, I never actually listened to the lyrics. I, I really think it's a, a, a wiring problem in my brain. Uh, somebody told me I have, I don't know if it's perfect pitch, but the ability to, to recreate, you know, if somebody, you hear a song, you can play it back note by note, not from memory like Mozart, but just you know, you can tell the difference between notes. I thought everybody could do that. They said, nope. So maybe the music just locks in. But in any event, I had heard that song so many times, and I'd never listened to what it said. And it is just magical. I mean, it, it's just absolutely magical. I don't know where it feels like it's set in, like, Casablanca or Marrakesh or something like that. But to the political point, was it was, number one, it was so clean, and it was so happy and so smooth and so positive which brings me to my second point which is having watched the video on youtube right below it was one of these reaction things three young guys in their mid-20s let's say reacting to 70s and 80s music so i decided i'll watch these um younger guys reacting to this music it blew them away blew them away and um and it and it's right to blow them away and i'm listening to this these guys keep stopping it you know and it's like that's that that particular song and, and virtually everything from that period is just so well produced, you know. I mean, at the the solo, his vocals trail off into violin, and then the violin goes into acoustic guitar, and the acoustic guitar goes into an electric guitar, and the electric guitar goes into the saxophone, and it's just unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Um, and and these guys are saying this is maybe the best song I ever heard, and I thought yeah, you, you may be right. Not just for for me, but you know, for you as well. Um, and then, having seen these guys, they're pretty good. Uh, and so I looked at another video. It's this is the, this is them reacting to Baker Street uh, by Jerry Rafferty. Baker Street was was played on a constant loop when it came out. Um, and uh, and I'm listening to Baker Street for the first time in a long time. And really hearing the lyrics for that for the first time too, but um, but the just the, the the quality, the instrumental quality, the musical quality, those were pop tunes. They were pop tunes. They were incredible. They were incredible compositions. Just real musicianship there and real composing ability there. And what these three guys were saying, I wish I could remember the name. I want to say Five Twelve Club or something like that. Um, what they were saying is. There, for them, is that there's this giant secret box full of all of this unbelievably cool music that they've never heard before because it's, you know, it's, it's boomer music or whatever. But watching people listen to this for the first time, I had this experience not too long ago. I watched somebody's reaction to Bohemian Rhapsody and then I forget what the other ones were. First-time listeners to all of this stuff that I grew up with, and it, and it blows them away. And the other thing I realized about this music was that they're still playing it. They're still playing it in, um, on, on radio stations, obviously, 
in shopping malls, outdoors, wherever you are, they're still playing classic rock, rock from 19, you know, 75, 76, 77. So, you know, so let's say I graduated in 77 because I did 87, 97, 2007, 2017. So that's what, 45 years ago? I'll tell you one thing, when I graduated uh, high school in 1977, we weren't listening to music that was 45 years old, you know, then we weren't listening to songs from the 20s or the 30s. Um, there's something about that period that's just classic. And it made me also a little sad, but it also made me very um, grateful. Uh, in a way, I hadn't been grateful before. I'd always been grateful for the fact that um, I was born in an age without computers or devices. And if I'd been born just a few years earlier, I would have missed that wave, but I didn't. So I, when the computer revolution started, I was there with the Apple II. Uh, and so I was grateful to have been able to see what life was like before these devices and then after them. And the same exact thing applies to astronomy. Uh, for the generations and generations, hundreds if not thousands of years prior to the mid to late 60s, all the people that lived prior to this had all of these questions and never got to find the answers. Everybody born after a certain time got to find the answers immediately. People, young people who start looking, I wonder what Pluto looks like. No mystery for them. It's a mystery for us. We didn't have the faintest idea what Pluto looked like. And I think about the slides that we would put up on the planetarium to represent Pluto, and it's like, it's just a color blur. Um, and so it was a blessing to be born and live a life that not that had me pining for the answers out of curiosity and then getting the answers. So I didn't have to deal with the frustration of always wanting to know and then dying before anyone knew. And I didn't have to deal with the um, complacency of being born with all the answers to these questions and just having them there. So it was the first time I really, really felt that for music and for pop culture, you know? The, uh, the, the cheers thing, the friends, and I'll, I'll tell you what I'm, I'm worried about um, politically and, and not even politically, this is culturally, I guess, better word. There's an awful lot about Gen Z that is a first time in human history kind of thing. And uh, I mean, ever in human history. And I think that this is the first time that we have ever produced a human generation that didn't have a common cultural heritage, because uh, there isn't one anymore. Um, people my age, we can all get together with complete strangers in, and talk about, you know, Gilligan's Island or, or, um, or even shows that I just personally hated, like Hee Haw, which I just couldn't stand, but it was either that or 60 Minutes, so it's on on Sunday nights, it's something else too, I have no memory of it. So we all sat around the same campfire. There were three different channels, but essentially there was really only one good show on at a time. There's no way to record the shows. If you missed it, you missed it. You couldn't binge watch them. You couldn't go back and see them. You just had to watch them in real time. There was a, a, a little booklet, most the best-selling magazine in the world, a little paper booklet about this big and about that thick called TV Guide, and you would look and find out what's going to be on on Thursday night, and there would be your answers, right? The TV Guide was just huge. You had to have it like the phone book, all these other things. I'm very glad to have a limited entertainment. I'm very glad to have uh, the internet. Uh, but I'm back to the same thing with the astronomy stuff. I, I'm sorry that people who could have used the internet for uh, good 
and uh, for their, uh, you know, satisfying their curiosity, you never got a chance to use it. But I'm very concerned about people who have all of the answers at their fingertips without knowing what questions to ask. And likewise, there is no common culture for, um, for anybody, right? Even into the 90s, even later than that, really, but even, like, for instance, in the 90s, everybody's still listening to, you know, um, they're just, they're listening to the same music um, and, and watching more or less the same shows. So what happens when there is no cultural glue to hold us together? I think the second episode, the second chapter, I think, of, uh, of Silent America, which I published back in 2005, and this episode came, that particular chapter I wrote in 2003, I think, so 20 years ago now. And I started off by saying, um, uh, telling a story I'd heard, I, I don't know for certain fact it's true, but I, I'd heard it in a couple different places. And this happened in the, I don't know, 90s or something like that. And uh, it was a story about an American tourist who was in, in Paris, and he was basically just walking around, you know, on these beautiful things. He was, I think he was on Champs-Élysées, and he saw a group of people. He kind of wandered over there, and he heard some music, and it was a guy with an acoustic guitar. There's a crowd of people gathered around him, and he was singing the theme from Gilligan's Island. And everybody there was an American. And and everybody within the sound of this just huddled over. And when people came to look at what this was, the French came to look over at this, and was, this is lunatic. But any American who heard it or saw the crowd, like this guy did, went over and stuck around. And this guy just played TV theme songs for, I don't know, an hour. And people were practically crying, you know. It's like, we, it, it's something we all had in common. And I don't know what there is in common now. Uh, again, I just glance at the comments every now and then. Uh, uh, the original Osaka on YouTube said, Space Ghost. LOL, LOL. Space Ghost was interesting because I loved the cartoon when it was the cartoon, and I loved, and I really loved Space Ghost Coast to Coast. I thought that was just fantastic. Um, Dave Big Booty wants to know, will anyone listen to Taylor Swift in 20 years? I suspect so. A couple of songs. She's got some really good songs. Um, Blank Space, I think, is a terrific song. Uh, but I don't think there's the kind of cultural musical heritage. I, when I hear that, I understand that that people in the 40s and the greatest generation heard Elvis Presley and thought, my God, what garbage. I, that's part of that's part of life. You know, older generations always think that their stuff was better than younger generations, and that's exactly the way it's always been and always will be that way. But with that said, uh, I don't think, I can't think of any really memorable songs uh, from the last 10 years. They're there, but they don't spring to mind. And if you played them for me, I go, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, but even if, even if the stuff is all garbage, subjectively speaking, because this is all a matter of opinion, obviously, it's not, they're not even listening to the same garbage together. Everybody's listening to, uh, to something different. Now, Marisha asked an interesting question. Are Elon Musk and Lady Gaga cultural glue? Uh, Lady who? Uh, she's so 2000 and, uh, and, you know, 2000 teens, right? Um, but uh, I don't think so because Elon Musk is a news figure, you know, like FDR or, or, or somebody like that. But pop culture is different because you really kind of let your hair down and you just you just let it hit you. And and listening to the stuff from the, the time I grew up and just hearing it fresh again, 
it just, again, it made me really uh, sad. Now, that's an interesting point. Roadrider on Twitch, uh, Roadrider58 says, earbuds are the culprit. Yes. It's not just the buds, even going back to the Walkman with the phone headphones. Yes. People individually listening to what they want to listen to. I'm not saying take this away. I'm not saying that, you know, that this is intrinsically bad. I'm just saying we've never been here before. Um, and I have listened to, I've been in restaurants where they're playing like current pop music. And I've been to a couple clubs where they're playing current pop music. And it's a click track. Uh, it's a click track uh, with um, really nasty lyrics. And I, I look at, at this and, and this is what's going into people's heads. And it's not just the nastiness of the lyrics. It's the, it's the simplicity of the sound. I, honest to God, cannot remember whether this is an original thought of mine or whether I heard somebody else say this. I, I really honestly cannot tell. But if you were to look at, um, if you just want to say just black music, right? If you were to lay out on a, on a, and read, read the music for Scott Joplin, um, for Solace, let's say, uh, or, or Maple Leaf Rag or The Entertainer even, which everybody knows. If you look at, you look at the structure of that, and then you look at the structure of Thelonious Monk, which is a little, little uh, uh, simpler, but still incredibly musical. And then you, if you were to take a, a, a music sheet of what's being said today, just look at the complexity of the sheets. Just stand for it back from across the room. How much information is there? Take taste out of it, right? I'm not saying anyone is better than the other. Just put them up on a wall and watch how music has become not more and more complex, but simpler and simpler, simpler. To the point where it's not, I'm not going to say it's not music anymore, because that's a, that's a, you know, that's a dead thing to say. But it certainly isn't musical anymore. And I guess maybe that's the difference. That's not a bad way of putting it. It's still music, it's just not musical. There's nothing musical about it. Um, and, uh, and I really, you know, I come down on, on Gen Z and all this stuff, and, and especially the SJWs and all that stuff, come down on them really hard because because of what comes out of their mouths but they're not responsible for what comes out of their mouths because they're not the ones that put the stuff into their head in the first place it's those it's those teachers that i just want to i just want to i want to send them to a socialist paradise that's what i want to do i want them to i just want to move them out to cuba or venezuela or any other places that they want to go to but um it's my hope that to some degree um people will uh uh, discover all of the stuff that's out there. Now, I don't know if Pro Death Lobby was talking to me, but somebody wrote in YouTube that you're out of touch. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, but that's because there's nothing to be in touch with. Um, I was I was with modern music all the way through most of the 90s. I didn't like the 90s as much as the 80s, but you know, I just don't... It's not that I'm not exposed to it. It's just... There's just not a whole lot there. There's not a whole lot there that they continue to play. Um, and that's the point I'm getting at, I guess, ultimately. These guys were listening to music that's 45 years old that, was, that, that I heard on a daily basis on the radio when I was in high school. And I don't hear anybody listening to music that was made six years ago or seven years ago. I don't hear it anywhere. Uh, and and I, I, just, I just think it's sad. You know, it's such a... Um, it's just such a pleasure. You know, played, um, I heard him cover Boston's uh, More Than a Feeling. Got to listen to that again, and it's like, man, these guys are freaking awesome. Uh, 
So anyway, uh, we're going to find out what it's going to be like to have a generation that doesn't have... Um, where are my Super Chats? How are we meant to give you money? Thank you, Eric. Hold that thought. Uh, I'm going to be out of Super Chats until I get um, at least get this shoot done and probably until I get these scripts done. We'll see. Um, and I hope that the I think the I think the one way to get um, people to to discover exactly how much they missed uh, is through these reaction videos. I think that's about the only way. And by the way, by the way, when I said I wasn't listening to 20s or 30s music, that's I wasn't my high school wasn't listening to it. But when I was a senior in 77, there was a huge, huge, huge Beach Boys uh, revival. We're all playing the Beach Boys in 77. And um, and there are some songs from the 50s that I like, not too many. I don't know, something about the 50s, a little tinny, is a little, I don't know, a little soulless. But I listened to music from the 60s and, you know, and, and the serious stuff and, you know, and the Beatles and the Stones. And I know the words to Henry VIII. And I, and I know, you know, um, I know Good Golly, Miss, Miss Molly. And, and I know That'll Be the Day by Elvis Costello. And, I mean, um, um um, come on, Betty Holly, uh, and I know, I know music from the '40s. You know, I know, I know the big band sound. Some of those, some of those tunes are just great. And if you've ever seen people dancing in the '40s, you know that Greatest Generation, those old fogies, those when those guys are doing the swing thing, man, they are moving. They are moving. Um, but, you know, uh, in the mood and uh, it's, it's just great. Joplin, I like Scott Joplin very much. And, I, and I've had a good background with classical music as well. So uh, I don't know much from the 20s or the, you know, the 10s or the 1800s. And uh, I think about the only thing I know from the 1800s is, um, is it called Asco on Farewell? It's the theme song from the Ken Burns Civil War thing. I told you I could sing the notes before. I was obviously uh, mistaken about that. It's that, that music. It's very, very, very soft. And even even weird stuff like Scotland the Brave and um, and uh, Gary Owens and that kind of thing. So anyway, there's a Pennsylvania six five thousand. That's a great tune, man. That's a great tune, Mary Lou. It's a, it, it's it's really rocking. When I got to L.A. in '88, there was a jet, there was a swing revival here in the early '90s. And if you ever saw Swingers, it's a really great movie, really great movie. Vince Vaughn is fantastic, and John Favreau, who's gone on to do Iron Man and be Mr. MCU, you know, John Favreau is is terrific as an actor in that movie. And in fact. There's a scene in Swingers that is the most uncomfortable three and a half, four minutes that has ever been put to film. And it is just brilliant. If you have, well, if, you, if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, yeah, so, you know, pop culture as an expression may no longer apply to things. Ash, Akoshin for Ash Koken, see, I got two different spellings there. We know the, we know the song. Ash Koken Farewell. Was written a couple decades ago, really? Critical thinker says, "I did not know that." It sure sounds like it comes from them. Um, anyway, so there we go. Um, yeah, so the t entire idea of pop culture may not have any meaning uh, 
in the future. And that is, I don't know what to do about that. That's going to be, it's going to be really strange. Uh, 580, uh, 5708 Riviera says, did you watch the new Elvis movie? As a matter of fact, I did. And I don't want to say too much on pop culture because it's a Monday night show. I'll get to the political questions on Facebook in a minute. But I will tell you one thing about the Elvis thing. Um, Natasha and I went because we wanted to go see something and there really was nothing else playing. And I didn't have any interest in going to see it because I saw the trailer. And the reason I didn't want to go based on seeing the trailer was just thought this guy doesn't look anything like Elvis. By the time I came out of that movie, I thought that Elvis didn't look anything like Elvis. That this, that this actor was what Elvis is supposed to look like. That's how good it was. And, and the makers of that movie did something really brilliant. And that is that the, I've talked about this, I think, once before. The visual style of the first 15, 20 minutes of that new Elvis movie, everything is moving around so fast. There's so much visual stuff going on. Wow. It's like, you know, Baz Luhrmann kind of thing. And I'm watching. It's keeping my interest. But what they're doing is they're getting, they're kind of getting you a little bit exposed to the actor who plays Elvis because he's not a lookalike for Elvis exactly. Uh, not in the same way that the guy who was in Rocket Man was. He, he looked a lot like Elton John, and, and obviously um, I've forgotten his name now in, in um, the Freddie Mercury movie. He looked a lot like him. This guy, not not like a, a, a particularly strong, um, uh, you know, lookalike quality. But by the time they started singing. I was so invested in it. I thought, I'll stick around with it. And then by the time this guy's done, like I said, I, I, I couldn't remember what Elvis looked like. Um, so uh, I loved it. Yeah, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I think my favorite movie of the last maybe 10 years is The Greatest Showman. I think that's, that's probably the, the most fun I've had in movie theater uh, recently. Anyway, we'll get to all of this stuff on Monday because Monday is Pop Culture Day here at uh, Build.com, and this is, of course, Political Day. So, so much for feeling happy, nostalgic, and joyful. Let's uh, jump into the current uh, political situation. Why don't we? And I'll just take this here, and I'll swing this over here like that. You see? Nothing to it. But I should refresh the I don't know if I'm going to get a question about this. I, I just, it just flew into my head. And so since that's basically what the show's all about, I'll just go with this real quick. This is a strictly political thing. Um, uh, been looking at the uh, updates from the Ukraine war all the time. And now, I don't know if you're, if you're up to this thing on a day-by-day -day basis, but now there's already, Russia's already put out uh, pamphlets about the fact that um, that the Ukrainians may blow up this hydroelectric dam, when in fact the Russians will will blow it up, uh, and and the um, the river there uh, is driven by this. So they're not only going to lose uh, a lot of their power. Putin's already struck at uh, Ukrainian power stations, but if the Russians blow this dam, uh, it's going to cause one of those dam uh, floods, and it could kill thousands of people downstream. I mean thousands. Uh, that's what the buzz is today. Um, the original IOSOC, I think. No, the original OSOC. What do I think the chances for nuclear weapons deployment? I think they're, I don't know, if I had to take a guess off the top of my head, I'd say 
may be higher. But uh, the chance of all-out nuclear war, no. I just, it's unthinkable. I can't, I can't see that happening. If, if Putin decides to make that decision for tactical nuclear weapon, for, for a um, battlefield nuclear weapon, uh, the condemnation that Russia is going through now is nothing compared to what would happen after that. Um, now, I've heard people who are really deep into the military aspect of this war say, if Putin decides he's going to use a tactical nuclear weapon, he's going to have to do it by airplane because he doesn't think that a, a missile crew would fire, would, would obey those instructions, but you probably could find some high-level colonel or something who could fly the, you know, SU-32 um, or whatever and get it in there, SU-35, and get it in there and, and, and drop it. But I don't know. I thought his position was untenable when he, when the war was not over shortly. And then all these defeats and stuff, he's still there. I thought he'd be gone. I said he'd be gone by the end of the year. I still have some time for that. I also said he'd be gone by the middle of summer. I was dead wrong about that. But um, my feeling about the about like a full-blown nuclear exchange is it didn't happen at the height of the Cuban Missile Fight Crisis. It, and it didn't happen again in 1987 when the Cold War heated up again with Reagan. Human Humans just plain didn't do it. And I realized I meant to turn these drives off at the beginning of the show. I'll do that right now. Is there a little noise? Much better. So, um, yeah, I just, I cannot imagine uh, anything that would, that would justify that. But then again, um, you know, uh, he surprised me before. Having spent the last six weeks on a daily basis with the Cheka and with all of this string of murderers, it's a seven-part series, and he's episode seven. Uh, one way or another, he's going to be Russia's last czar. He is certainly the last politician to come out of the Soviet system, and as I like to say, uh, Putin wasn't born in St. Petersburg. He was born in Leningrad, joined the, uh, had to lie about his age to join the KGB, tried to join when he was 16. They said, come back in a couple years. So he's been, um, he's been a KGB guy his entire existence. And the thing that's unique about him is he took all of that KGB secrecy and murderousness that just the absolute complete disregard for human life. It's, it's, I've never seen anything like it. I've never ever in history have I seen, even including in Nazi Germany, by a wide margin, by the way, I've never seen execution orders or sentences handed out like they were handed out in, in the Soviet Union. Just broadcast, broadcast. Um, just 300 people there, shoot them. 5,000, shoot them. 9,000, shoot them. 12,000. Well, I want 120,000 shot in this town. It's unbelievable. Um, and so he's, he's this, he's, he's this kind of guy and and the Russian army is showing an awful lot of signs of what the Russian army does, which is rape and loop, loot things. Um, hey, it's time. Hey, time is watching from Canberra, Australia. Canberra. Uh, and um, as I recall, the Canberra bomber was, I think, the only bomber that we bought off of Britain and used in the United States Air Force that and then and then the uh um harrier 
anyway, thank you. It's good to be it's good to be heard down there. Had a most wonderful time ever in um, in Brisbane in uh, 1998. I was down there for four or five months. I just love Australians. They're just just tremendous people. Really, really tremendous people. Fun, 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 fun people. Um, although I do do notice that when I went to Kentucky Fried Chicken, which you know is made with uh, seven. Uh, secret herbs and spices that I think in Australia they're made with uh, two. Uh, but other than that, it's absolutely fantastic. Anyway, um, yeah, so let's get to these uh, questiones here. And then I can come out of the depression of talking about American uh, pre uh, current day political situation and get back into something a little more relaxing and, and nourishing to the soul like, you know, the Great Terror in the Soviet Union in 1936, 37, 38. All right, here we go. Um, uh, Joe Pomeroy copied from last week. That's a guarantee. Good evening, Bill. Good evening, Joe. Uh, okay. Um, just wanted to say I hope you can find time for rest and relaxation at some point. Me too. Uh, to be honest, the past few weeks have been a blur because I've been engaged to the love of my life. Congratulations, uh, sir. Congratulations to you. That's the single greatest thing that can happen to you in your life. Um, it happened while we were in Switzerland, and on that day we paraglided in the Alps. Well, that's a keeper. Uh, absolutely incredible. Uh, time and absolutely incredible time, and even through the seventh day, God rested. He spilt his beer on Switzerland because that is the most beautiful country in the world. I think there's a, a lot of truth to that. Uh, it, I think that I think that Switzerland does mountains better than any other country in the world. The nice thing about America is there's you know, how many different, you know, the California coast. You got the Rockies. You got the Florida Everglades. You got you got a lot of a lot of diversity. Grand Canyon, all that stuff. But yes, I think I think Switzerland is it, it, these little hidden valleys in the Alps are just astonishing. Um, I'm sharing this because for the past dozen years I've listened to your videos, read your writing, and seen the potential of the colonies and Stratosphere Studios. Every single day I commute to work, I have two hours to listen to the rest of the right-wing sphere from Daily Wire to uh, Louder with Crowder and even Tim Cast, if I recall, oh, IRL, sorry, in real life. Each one of them has expressed interest in the type of media and culture you're providing. Tim Cast would be a perfect, would be perfect to be booked with you, yourself, and Zoe. I have no idea how to get that to happen, but it's a more informal group setting, and Zoe and yourself bounce off each other well, and I can guarantee you your first year's membership, you'll mesh with the Tim crowd, a uh, Tim Cast crowd. Yes. Um, so, in the immortal words of the great book uh, movie Stand, Men of the West, uh, Joe. Thank you, Joe. P.S. We will remain happy warriors. Your reach goes further than you can imagine. Your essays from Eject, Eject, Eject still ring true. Arlington is still there and always will be. Take care and Godspeed. Thank you, Joe. Um, I got two uh, emails uh, a week ago. I've, I've not responded to either of them because. I need the time to respond to these things. Uh, I almost said carefully, but that's not the word I'm looking for. Thoroughly. Thoroughly. Two of the best emails ever. One of them was, uh, was uh, kind words, uh, very much like this. And the other one, which, again, I will respond to, I, I don't think the person who wrote it is listening live. I think he said he listens on Friday mornings or the next day, doesn't get a chance to catch live. Maybe he's watching it now because it's on Friday. But it was a very detailed letter 
very detailed email, and the first part of it was, as usual, just you know, emotionally really overwhelming and exactly what I needed to hear. You know, it just really made a big difference in my life and all that stuff. But then he went on to make a, an astonishingly brilliant um, analysis. I don't know if this is his theory or whether he saw it somewhere and he's repeating it, but uh, you know who you are who, who wrote this letter, both of you, and I owe you a response, which I might be able to do after the show tonight, actually. Um, and they were both so powerful and so moving, but the, the this other one went on about... Um, went on about uh, this idea that YouTube basically has three axes of interest. Um, one of them is time, one of them is fun, and the third one is um, authenticity. And that the further you go along any one of those axes, the more views you get. So if you've got length, and you've got authenticity, that's good. If you've got length and authenticity and fun, and sometimes Stratosphere Lounge gets to that, then, then that's great. He pointed out a number of things that I never really thought about before. It was really, really very brilliant. One of them was that, um, that once you get past uh, a certain length, people actually like longer videos than shorter ones. Uh, because as we're seeing now, many people just listen to this on a drive or so on. And he said, I'd much rather listen to uh, one good program for two or three hours, then try to spend those same two or three hours listening to eight or nine things to try to find them. That was news to me. Uh, he also um, said some things that I thought were just absolutely fascinating. Uh, for, specifically, he said that right angle, which is the primary uh, thing that we put out here, is that right angle is actually in the dead spot of all three of those axes. It's too long to be a short video and is too short to be a long video. So in terms of time, length of time, it's it's in the dead zone. In terms of uh, spontaneity, it's also in the dead zone because the questions are prepared. Um, we do that on the backstage show and I suspect why that backstage show only gets seen by two, three hundred people. You have to be a member to see it. But those two or three hundred people are rabid fans of the backstage show because the backstage show is when we first present these ideas to each other and um, and it's just an hour long jam. Um, so in terms of spontaneity, it's it's a it's a, it's not exactly a scripted show, but it's it's kind of a scripted show. And then in terms of the fun, the fun comes and goes depending on the topic and so on. but but basically, he said, you know, this this stuff that you that you put out uh, four times a week, you're kind of you're kind of in the, in the dead zone, not the sweet spot of all three of those axes, and that really got me thinking. Uh, he he said you'd be much better off doing a live stream on this, and I thought, yeah, it would be great, and I'll talk to Stephen Scott about that. Uh, although I won't do it on Tuesdays, I was going to do the shows this Tuesday. Um, but after that, I will talk with the boys and say instead of doing this one day a week where we do, you know, we shoot for probably two hours, almost three hours, I guess, when you throw in the backstage show. Uh, maybe we could um, do a live stream two or three times a week and have it be completely, utterly unrehearsed uh, and just start flipping through the news, you know. I think that would, uh, and longer. I think that would be, you know, be certainly worth a try. 
Um, and uh, so uh, that and, and many, many other kind words that came from him and from many other people and many other great ideas. I've just had to tune them out because I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that uh, I don't have time to read them. Um, I just don't have the disc capacity. I'm feeling this really strongly now, really strongly. Like it's just, you know, hard drive is full and, and I have to, um, I have to uh, basically stop the download because there's no more drive space available. Uh, even even talking about the music earlier, and I find this has been true for the last week or so, although certainly been a lot less stressed lately, um, thanks to Daily Wire. Uh, but I find that I'm having a harder time remembering little things, and I think that uh, it's because of just, you know, the, the drive is full. I cannot put any more information in here right now. So uh, for the people that I've missed, and I've, I've saved all the emails and I haven't gone through them in many cases, and in some cases some of these are two, three weeks older or older, uh, for the last two months or so at least, I have just basically had to kind of go offline in terms of input, right? Input. Uh, things like, uh, I just look up here and glance at things and I see um, uh, Patrick Reed says it's Super Chats. Super Chats is the kind of thing that should be very easy to do. It's the Alzheimer's, exactly, you've got it. Um, I, 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 I would know. Um, but, um, but, uh, I really need to get some of this stuff delivered so that I can free up some drive space. Um, somebody asked in the, in the YouTube comments earlier if I'm going to be doing any more um, firewalls. I am. Um, obviously, they're waiting. I'm, I'm, I haven't done a moving back to America in, in a month. Um, I've just been too overwhelmed with this. I have a mountain of work to get out. And the research for this uh, latest series is is bigger than the research for the previous three combined because there's so many moving parts in this. Even in the Cold War, which was 13 episodes, I could take a look at, okay, here's, here's I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this period now of 1960 to 1966, let's say. And I just kind of look at world history. Oh, that's interesting, that's interesting, that's interesting. Oh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, that's a bolt of it. Ended up doing um, one on the Bay of Pigs and I think the other one on Cuban Missile Crisis. But in any event, uh, this thing is like, my God, it gets easier. Once you get to Stalin and Yagoda, you've pretty much got the secret police are on a rail and Stalin's in charge. But for the first two episodes, you've got to get the whole Russian Revolution in there and you have to, you have to get all of the, you know, the, the, the show trials and the Civil War and, and, and then... Um, you know, you've got the you got the Bolsheviks trying to end uh, World War One. You got the Treaty of Brett, uh, Brest-Litovsk, if that's the correct pronunciation. Yeah, the Civil War. You've got you know. You, then you've got the battle between the Bolsheviks and the uh, left uh, SRs, and you've got then then you've got uh, you know all of this. But by the time you get to Episode Three, you're you're pretty much linear after that. So these first two are just really hard. But yes, um, I do have uh, uh, I, I plan to do more firewalls. I've got. I've got notes on something, and I should finish it because it's easy. I'm just disc, disc full. Um, I'm going to do the next firewall on the National Anthem. I'm just going to explain the National Anthem for people. Uh, so um, that's that. But eventually, 
I will get this uh, off my plate. And then um, I will uh, have some time. Now, I, I really don't guess there's any problem with me uh, letting you know about this. Um, I had a, a talk with uh, Jeremy about some things at Daily Wire. And um, so far, I've done four. This this one I'm working on now, the Soviet uh, terror state, was the fourth one. And these are all kind of one-off projects. Um, but uh, I think that um, that there's a, a place to be doing a regular series with them. And I don't know if it's weekly or once a month or whatever. I actually have two ideas. Um, hang on a second. Okay. Um, so I will bounce them off of you, even though I've not pitched them to Daily Wire yet. I've, I've told Jeremy I have a couple ideas for him. Haven't told them what they are. Uh, so, you know, uh, if you happen to see him on the street, please don't uh, tell him about this. Um, but with that said, there are. I had two ideas. I've had look. The four that we've done, Apollo 11, Cold War, America's Forgotten Heroes, and um, Empire Fear. These four are, are essentially one-off projects. You know, Apollo was four episodes, Civil, uh, Cold War was 13, Forgotten Heroes was seven. This one will be seven. But I'm talking about doing something different. So I had two shows that I want to pitch to them, and, and I think I'd like to get your, get your feedback on these because I think they're really pretty cool ideas. Hang on, let me get that other uh, stream up there where I can see it. Okay. So, uh, again, uh, please don't email to them. I'd like to make it a surprise, but, again, it's not the end of the world. Otherwise, I wouldn't say anything. The two, the two shows that I want to do uh, as a series, as, an, as essentially an ongoing series, are uh, the first one I want to call the military. And, uh, and I want to go all around the world and I want to do an hour on specific aspects of our military. I've been on a submarine before. I want to go back on a submarine. I want to, I want to go to an aircraft carrier. I want to jump out of an airplane during an uh, airborne drop. I want, to, um, I want to fly in a B-52. I want to fly with the Thunderbirds. I want to do all these things. And I want to take a look at America's military and... And I am the only guy that I know who could really do this right. Because I'm the only person I know that understands this stuff to be able to ask questions on a level that most people don't get. Now, here's something I've learned about, about not even interviewing, really. It's just talking to people. Back at PJTV, I, I did something that I thought was going to be a series. I ended up doing only one episode. Not a whole lot of people saw it. It's one of the best things I ever did. It was called A Soldier Story. And, um, and we only did one. And in that, we interviewed um, a guy who was a Higgins boat. Uh, uh, bosun, I guess he was, or a chief maybe, uh, during World War II. For those of you that are not familiar with the term, there's a number of different variations, but as a general rule, a Higgins boat are those square landing craft that you put the guys in either for D-Day or in the Pacific, and it's got uh, treads underneath it, it's got engines, there's a there's a driver and there's a machine gunner usually, and then up front you've got maybe, I don't know, a dozen guys, 20 guys, something like that. So I was talking to a guy named Leon who was a Higgins boat 
uh, driver, and he was there for Tarawa. Now, he's undoubtedly been asked questions about this before, but he'd never been asked questions about Tarawa from a guy who knew what happened at Tarawa. He got asked questions about Tarawa from news people or from, uh, you know, students or something. He never got asked about Tarawa from somebody who knows, who knew in advance what happened at Tarawa. So I'll just give you one example. Um, I've mentioned it once or twice before, but it bears repeating because this is the entire, this is the entire soul of the pitch, right? Um, he's telling me about Tarawa, and I say, okay. So here's the thing, Leon. So you're 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 on the boat. He was he was not only in the first wave of Tarawa. He was actually the like the sector commander. He uh, he was it was his boat that everybody else was going to line up for for that particular sector. I want to say it was Red Sector, but I don't remember if that's right for sure. So he and nine of these boats are the first wave going into Tarawa, and they're they're already starting to take small arms and mortar fire. And then all of a sudden, 500 yards out from the shore, which is a good walk, there's there's a there's this this grinding sound. Tarawa, uh, Prodeth Lobby says, T A R A W A. It was one of the islands in the Pacific landing campaign. And Tarawa was the most badly botched of all of the um, invasions that the Marines had to do in the Pacific. Uh, it wasn't that the guys didn't do the preliminary work, it's just that they got something wrong. What they got wrong was the tides. Uh, they had not counted on the particular time of the invasion, not just the date, but the time of the invasion. There happened to be a, an, ex, an especially low tide, a combination sometimes when the sun and the moon are in the right place, you get it like extremely high uh, or, you know, or low tides. And just by sheer coincidence, these they'd measured the tides, they'd done all the research with the frogmen and all that stuff, and those frogmen are amazing. These guys just wearing a mask, flippers, uh, a set of, uh, uh, you know, speedos, and a combat knife, and they're diving in there, and they're measuring depth, you know, and they're clearing mines. Those guys are amazing. But uh, on Tarawa, they had not planned on this being an exceptionally low tide, which means that all of these landing craft went aground. UDT, underwater demolition teams, yeah, thanks, Road Rare went aground, not on the beach, but 500 yards out to sea. The whole thing is just very flat beach. And when they'd measured it, they thought they'd be able to run these things right up to the beach, drop the things, get the guys into the cover line of the jungle, you know, get above the seawall, take some losses there. But, you know, that's that's how it goes. They're more or less protected while they're in the signals boat. So I said, so there you are, Leon. You're, you're heading on your way in. Uh, and... Um, and all of a sudden, you hear this grinding sound. And that must have not been a pleasant feeling. He said, no, it wasn't a pleasant feeling. And I'll tell you something else. We we realized that we were uh, running aground, which doesn't damage the boat because there are treads underneath it, but they can't, they can't go forward anymore. He said, I'll tell you what was especially disturbing about that was just, I don't know, 30 seconds before we actually hit the, hit the, the, the ground out there, I was in charge of alignment for this line. It was our boat, we were the left-hand boat, and I was the was in charge of that boat. And he said, on the way in, it was my job to use signal flags to keep this line straight. So if I could see if it was going a little bit forward, I'd do something with the flag. If it was going backwards, I'd do something with the flag. And he said, so I was up there, on, uh, you know, kind of standing on the deck. I had a driver, and I was kind of standing on the deck and trying to signal the, these guys with these signal flags. And it soon became obvious to me that... Um, that these signal flags were drawing a lot of fire, 
a lot of fire. Everybody was concentrating on me because I'm obviously doing something important. So I dropped those effing flags and I got back down in my hole. And I said, that's what I would have done. Absolutely. That's what I would have done. So at Tarawa, they had no choice. They couldn't go any further. The ramps go down or over the side. And then the, then the Marines have to wade through waist deep or chest deep water for 500 yards. And then, then they're on the beach and they're getting shot at all the time. Now, as a form of exercise for people, sometimes for particularly obese people or whatever, or just people who want to get you know, their heart rate up and they don't, either don't swim or don't want to swim, wading through water is, is a really strong exercise, puts up a lot of resistance. So these guys had to wade with 150 pounds of packs on and their weapons through 500 yards of coral just to get to the beach and they're taking fire all the time. There's not a lot of footage from uh, World War II compared to what you would hope for. Hope for is not the word exactly. But there wasn't a lot of footage of terror. There's just a couple scenes. But when you see those scenes, and I, and I saw them because I edited the show, and you just see this distant shoreline and palm trees and then just, just water. Just, they're, just, they're just getting shot at. Now it gets interesting. Um, so he says, so we had to let them off, and, you know, and, and off they went. And, we couldn't even really cover them with the machine machine guns. We couldn't even really tell where they were shooting from. We just knew we were getting the, the shit beat out of us. Um, and so, uh, so, so then you go back, right? And this is this is exactly how it happened. Okay, this is exactly how it happened. It happened in real time as I was interviewing him. So I'm listening to this story, and he's talking about backing off of this reef to go back out to the ship, bringing the second wave. And I said, you know, Leon, I swear to God, I I've been studying this whole thing most of my life, and it never until this second occurred to me about something. I said, what do you mean? I said, when you see a movie like Saving Private Ryan or, or something like that, you see the boats go ashore, then the Marines get out, and they either get shot on the boat or you follow the Marines out, right? And you stay with the Marines. That's where the story is. And you see the, the, the boats backing out, right? You think, I'd much rather be on the boat personally, you know? But you had to go into that, what, three, four times? You said you had, we had to go in four times. That never had occurred to me until this instant. That, that, that ride that you've seen in Saving Private Ryan and all the rest of it, where everything's going to hell, and you just say, okay, they're ashore. I wish I was on the boat going back. You had to go through that four times. Yeah, that's what we had to do. And then, then the thought really hit me. I said... And so now you're back at the troop ship, and guys are coming down the cargo nettings, right, Marines, right? And you know what's waiting for them, but they don't know what's waiting for them, do they? He said, no, I felt like Sharon. I felt like the ferryman on the river sticks. I'm taking these boys to their death. They don't know what's, they don't have the faintest idea what's going on out there, and there's nothing I can do about it, nothing. Man, oh man. And then he said, I was coming back after the second trip, and we had wounded from the first wave on, on board, and there was a Marine laid out right next to me near the driving station. And he looked okay. He had been shot, but he looked like he was okay. And on the way back out to the boat to get him to the, to the uh, hospital on board the troop ship, this guy looked at me, and right out of the blue he said, don't forget me. And Leon said, huh? 
and goes back to driving the boat, looks over again a moment later, and the guy's gone. So Leon's telling me the story. He said, don't forget me. And he said, and I never did. I never did forget him. I'm thinking about him every day. I think about him right now. And, and this is when I realized that if you know enough about these horrific things, you, you can open up people who are not inclined to want to talk about these things. You can let them know that you know what they went through. Uh, I had a somewhat similar experience twice, and this is why I think I'd be really good for this show. Uh, when I was on board, uh, when I was on board the submarine, uh, I had a chance to spend some time with the executive officer. He was kind of taking us around the DVs, the distinguished visitors. I, I would have just considered myself a V personally, but anyway. And we're in the torpedo room and stuff. And he says, oh, you know, "Don't I don't want to start a Mike Schlitz. Uh, well, he, he, Mike Schlitz is one of the best men I know. So I don't want to talk about this all night, but we're in the torpedo room on the USS Pasadena, and we're, I don't know. I, I watched us go down to 600 feet. Nobody else knew it. You can't tell the sub is moving. It's just like, be, it's like sitting inside a, a restaurant. And, and in the back of this room, everybody's looking at the screen. There's a TV view of the, of the scope and then the scope and then you tell the thing dives. Then everybody's listening and there's like a chief up front. And he's talking about the submarines and all this other stuff. And I'm looking in the back of the room and in the back of the room there is this, this repeater basically. It's a, it's a big, big digital display about this big. And it's like showing us 15, 16, 17. And then it's showing us 250, 275, 300 keeps on going and I realized this these are this is our speed and our depth and they level out and and you can feel you can feel a little bit of dive feel a bit of angle and, it, and they level out and I'm looking here and Pasadena is not even breaking a wind here I mean sorry <laughs> sorry about that not even breaking a sweat here so I look in the back we're doing 20 knots 600 feet below the Pacific and I'm thinking this is really cool and I also know where I am on the sub and so I know that maybe 15 feet behind where I'm sitting against this bulkhead is a nuclear reactor. It's generating 160 megawatts of power. And it's just idling at this point, you know? It's not even working hard. So anyway, we get to the, to the tour of the torpedo room. And um, they were kind enough to, to shoot. Uh, they can't shoot torpedoes for us, which would have been really wasteful and stupid. But they can shoot a slug. So what they so what they did was they would um, they'd open the outer doors. The inner torpedo doors on the inside are obviously closed. They let the torpedo tube flood with water, and then they, using the compressed air that pushes the torpedo out, they just fire a slug of water. That water that was in the tube blows out through the front, and it feels like a torpedo launch. I bet it. It's actually, in fact, I know it's got to be more intense than a torpedo launch because a torpedo doesn't have that kind of mass. So you're flying all along, and fire one, and it feels like this. And you hear this, well, oh, hey. And I talked to the executive officer, and I wasn't trying to show off. I, I truly wasn't. I said, uh, sir, I, I may be wrong, but aren't the advanced uh, Mark 48s, aren't those swim-out torpedoes? Don't they? Don't you get rid of this launch transit with the with the... Mark 48 uh, ad caps, they, they just swim out, don't they? You don't have to deal with this because it makes a hell of a lot of noise. This fire one, fire two. That transient sound lights up the whole area. I said, don't these things swim out? And he looked at me and he said, I really can't talk to you much anymore. 
you know, he's very nice. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm not at liberty to discuss that. Fair enough. Had a similar situation on the destroyer when I was on the um, Spruance. We're in the back, and they were setting up a, a torpedo test. And the, the torpedoes that the that the destroyer can use to go after submarines are pretty short and stumpy looking. They're not anything like the Mark 48s. But they've got these torpedo tubes on the side, on the, on the back in the back of the, towards the aft of the boat, towards the stern, I should say. And um, and they're talking about this, and they're talking about launching this thing, and so on and so forth. And somehow or another, the topic of this thing, sonar, came up. And I, again, I'm talking to some guy. It was either the exec or, or the second officer. And I'm watching this, and he's talking about we're going to, you know, we're going to do this launch this test. They didn't fire at them, but they were going to later on in the day or in the week or whatever. And again, I'm just speculating. I said to this guy, you know, you know, it occurred to me, you could, um, couldn't you take one of these things, launch it, keep it quiet, put it, just dogleg it, just get it way out on a different vector, and then turn it to where you think your target is, then light it up over there so that the, so that the ping is coming from there, but you've got a direct line of contact to the thing because it's on a wire, right? You couldn't, couldn't you do something like that? And, and, and again, it was kind of like, um, uh, I, I, I suppose that's possible, but I'm not at liberty to discuss it. So this is why I want to do the military because uh, I want to do uh, want to do an aircraft carrier, and I did get invited many years ago to Miramar to fly in the F-18 simulator, the actual F-18 simulator that they train pilots on. And I told the guy, I want everything on full realism. I don't care how many times I crash or break the airplane. I just want to know that I did it for real. Whatever I did, I did for real. So uh, I, I've told this a few times, but I, I get in this thing. We lower the thing. They start the engines for me because I didn't know that procedure. I'm on the runway. Simulator puts me at the end of the runway, and I go full throttles. And here we are in full afterburner. And I'm looking at this rotation speed, 140 knots, something like that. Come back on the stick, nose comes up. And, and then, even though this wasn't a motion simulator, it's inside a, a, a golf ball. It's almost a complete hemisphere, and you're inside. And when that, and when that whole horizon, including your peripheral vision, when the, when the computer-generated horizon tilts back like that, you can, you can feel it. I went, whoa, that's amazing. I, I, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Good Lord, that's cool. That is absolutely something. Oh, let me pull the gear up. He says, "Too late. You you are you already had you left the landing gear in the parking lot, uh, somewhere at about 200 knots. The landing gear just got blown off the airplane. So I said, well, all right. So that's my mistake. My bad. So we went out and uh, and I hit the tanker. You know, we 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 were doing missile. He he said, but I don't think I can show you missile kills. It's something like that. I said, okay. So we I got a bunch of their MiG 29s with guns and then. Then I uh, did the refueling thing with the tanker, and I got caught the basket, and that was impressive. And then I said, all right, let's do the landing. So he puts me three miles in trail of a Nimitz-class carrier. And I'd done this in flight sims, but it had been a while. And so I'm flying this angle of attack, and I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm not doing the normal pilot stuff. I'm on a controlled crash. Angle of attack is set right. That means the plane's attitude is set right. And if I'm too low, I'm going to add power. If I'm too high, I'm going to lower power, but I'm not going to change the pitch of the airplane unless I absolutely have to. So in the U.S. Navy simulator at Miramar uh, Air Station, I come in, boom, hit the deck, full afterburners, and I just watched the deck come like this. Like, oh, we missed it. We're long. I said, yep. I said, try it again. So he sets me up again. And I think I went long on the second one. And on the third one, uh, I had two bolters, and on the third one, I caught the fourth wire. And I thought, wow, 
that was fun. So you can see why uh, the ability to, to do a, a, a show about the military with somebody who, who has that kind of um, understanding of all of the military could be really kind of interesting. And I also got a chance to talk to the Admiral on when I did the Spruance tour. I got to talk to the uh, uh, commander of the Pacific Surface Fleet. It was on his yacht, the Admiral's uh, launch, I guess is a better word. Pinnace, maybe. And uh, yeah, I saw Dustin was on a, was on a sub. Uh, yeah, and, and the Blue Angel said, so, so like Dustin, Dustin's great. But, um, but this would be pretty much exclusively it. And, and Dustin's a great guy. He's got a great channel, Smarter Every Day. It's one of the first channels I saw on YouTube. I love him. And Dustin knows an awful lot more about physics than I do, an awful lot more about most things than I do, but he doesn't know more about the military than I do. So, yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to fly with the Thunderbirds or the Blue Angels. I'd like, to, I'd, like to, I'd like to go all over the place. I'd like to do a rescue mission with the Coast Guard. I'd like to do, um, I'd like to go to tank training. Is that, is it Fort Rucker or Fort Hood, I guess? I think Fort Rucker is where they do um, advanced uh, attack helicopter training. I have some time in helicopters. And so my idea is that we would basically break this thing up into three levels. And it wouldn't be edited this way, but the three things we would want to do in every episode is, number one, what does this weapon do? What's it do? All right, the job of an attack submarine is to do what? That's why we have things like swim out torpedoes and all the rest of this stuff, okay? That's one third of the show. One third of the show is talking to the people, the regular people, and asking them, what they like best about it, uh, what, um, what they don't like the most, what makes them happy, what doesn't make them happy, where are you from, why did you decide to get into submarines, you know, blah, blah, blah. It, do you have a problem with morale with women on the, um, on the carrier? My thought would be if I'm on a carrier and I'm 18 years old and there's, and there's 4,000 men, no problem. But if there's 4,000 men and 300 women and I don't have a girlfriend, then suddenly I'm pissed off. Uh, those kind of questions. And then the, the third part would be I would talk to to the highest brass I could get because I talked to the Admiral, who, like I said, owns every surface vessel in the Pacific Ocean at the time. And we were on, a, on, on his uh, launch in San Diego Bay. And I was saying, what's your biggest problem? He said, there's no question about that. It's maintenance. I said, really? He said, yeah, we, we don't have enough ships to do the job that we need to do anyway. But our ships are in port for months longer than they need to be. Well, how'd that happen? Well, uh, back in its infinite wisdom, Congress decided it would be cheaper to do um, civilian contracting rather than have the Navy do their own maintenance. That's not my position or my uh, decision. My job is to follow the orders of the civilian um, leadership of the country. But that's basically what happened. And at this time, several years ago, it was during the Obama administration, it says, no, at the time, uh, we, our Congress is not, we're, the Senate's not passing budgets. We want, I don't know if we pass budgets anymore, but during the Obama years, I think we went four or five years without passing a budget. We just had a series of spending measures. And he said, now my problem is, I go to the civilian contractors and I say, here's the work I'm gonna need you to do. And they say, can you guarantee it? Because if you can, then we'll hire all these people and we'll get all the stuff that we need. Can you guarantee this is a three-year job? And I would have to say that to them, no, I can't guarantee it because we don't have a budget. We just have a spending measure, which, um, which will get us through the next five months. I think we can get more after that, but I can't promise it. No, I can't sign a contract saying that. And the guy said, well, in that case, we will have to, we will have to, we can do it. We're just gonna have to do it with a smaller crew and it's gonna take longer. 
and and this admiral was telling me that you know that a, fully a third or more maybe maybe even a, close close to a half of all of our you know seaworthy currently commissioned naval vessels are import for repairs because they can't get them turned around fast enough and i said this is this is ridiculous you know we got it we got to do something about that so if you could get to those three levels right if you could get to what does this unit do what does it what what is the role of the m1 abrams tank what's it like talking to the tankers then you talk to the guy who's in charge of training and you start asking questions like are tanks obsolete now from what we've seen in ukraine that kind of thing i think that would be the best look into the military that this country would have ever seen and i cannot think of another person who could do it and it'd be finally my chance to fly in some you know f-16s or hornets and it makes me happy uh, so and the great thing is you know we'd be on their team so um there we go uh so that's one show and the other show i'd like to do is uh i'd like to do a show called um called the educate sorry called the self-educated american and i'd like to do that show because occasionally it occurs to me that i know something about everything uh, there's some things i know more about but i know something about everything i know that sounds really obnoxious and arrogant but it's true and i am almost i'm not completely self-educated had a great primary education in english schools uh and it came to american uh sixth grade elementary school fifth grade sixth grade and then through junior high and high school in which i learned nothing i went to college i had a couple of classes where i learned an awful lot and almost everything i learned i learned after class hanging out with the professors having a beer but virtually everything i know i know about is stuff that i've just taught myself so when it's called the educated american the beautiful thing about this is are they referring to me or are they referring to you because what i want to do is i want to do a series and make it something to the effect of these are your minimum daily requirements these are the things that any educated american has to know here's how our government works when natasha went for her citizenship test i broke the whole thing down into a number of big cards like this you know here's the structure of the government here's uh the division of powers here's the history here's the flag here's all this other stuff so one episode would be here's what you need here's what the here's what the educated american needs to know about civics here's what the educated american needs to know about physics here's what they need to know about biology here's what they need to know about bullying here's what they need to know about the military here's what they need to know about uh biology viruses all this stuff astronomy and when i and when i say the minimum uh basic requirements for astronomy, for example, I would assume that the, here's what I'd want people to come out with. I'd want them to come out with two things. I'd want them to come out with an understanding of the difference between a planet, a solar system, a galaxy, and a cluster of galaxies. I'd like them to have a sense of the scale, where they live, and, and the pieces, right? Planets, solar systems, galaxies, and uh, and clusters of galaxies and how they're structured and what they're made of and i'd also like them to know uh, at least something about all of the uh of the planets in our solar system you should know that mercury is uh like kind of thing would be fun would be what's the hottest planet in the solar system 
Many people would say Mercury because it's closest to the sun, but it's not. It's Venus, much harder than Mercury because Venus has this thick atmosphere of carbon dioxide. It's 100 times thicker than our atmosphere. And greenhouse gases on, on, on Venus take Venus up to 850, 900 degrees Fahrenheit. Those are the kind of minimum things you need to know. Um, hi, everybody. Uh, and I would just, I would just, one episode would be, let's take a subject, and here's what the educated American should know about this. Geography, for example. Geography. You need to know what seven continents are, that there are seven continents. You need to be able to name them and find them on, on a map. You need to be able to show the oceans of the world. You need to be able to find um, each state in the Union and, and, and you need to be able to show on a map where, I don't know, let's say seven of the greatest cities in the world are. You got to show me where Paris is, where's London, approximately, right? Just get me close. Where's Berlin? Where's um, Moscow? Where's Tokyo? Where's uh, Seoul? You know, where's uh, Rio? Um, so uh, I think that would be a really fun show. It'd be something I could really, you know, um, do. Because I'm tired of watching kids who don't know how many, don't know, can't name three other countries. What's, well, this is a citizenship question. What borders us on the north? What borders us on the south? What about the east and the west? Those kind of things, these should be automatic. Music would be great. Biology would be great. Music would be great. I'd need a little help on music, I think. Although I know the basics of it, you know. I mean, really, if you're just going to, what, what do you need to know about music? Not about specific pieces of music, but first of all, what is music, you know? What's the difference between harmony and rhythm? And, um, and, and then I would say, and now are, here are pieces of music that every educated American should be able to identify by ear. This is Beethoven's Fifth. Uh, this is, um, oh, I don't know. You get the idea. We'll find, you know, this is, this is Mozart. Uh, this is um, maybe the Firebird Suite, something like that. Uh, and here are, here are the genres, right? That, that kind of thing. And by the way, here are instruments. What, we divide instruments how? Well, there are uh, woodwinds which would be like the saxophone or the clarinet or the oboe, and then there's brass, which would be trumpets, trombones, uh, bugles, tubas, sousaphones, strings, this kind of thing. Fundamental knowledge, right? And it's not a memorization, you know, drudgery. It's just fundamental things. Here is the essential earth history. Here's the history of, of civilization. We're going to start back with the frickin' Uh, Egyptians, and then we're going to go to the Phoenicians, and we'll actually start with Babylon, I suppose, and then this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, here they are. This is what has happened prior to us now. Yes, Takata and Fugue in D minor is definitely up there. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so those those two things I would like to do, and I'd like to, and, and the thing about Daily Wire is they certainly have, yeah, percussion, exactly. That's my favorite section. Uh, Daily Wire has the clout to get me where I need to go on the military show. I'm quite sure about that. Now, this wouldn't be my decision because I'm not a Daily Wire lawyer, but my strong input back on the military show, my strong, strong input would be the same thing I did when I went to Guantanamo. I've been to Guantanamo Bay twice. 
voluntarily, apparently. Um, so uh, when I went to Guantanamo, I, I told the PJTV producers, look, I'm on the side of the military here. Well, if you see something and you can get footage of it, you know, you're telling me that if they asked you if you took any footage, you would just turn it over? I said, yeah, I sure would. Of course I would. I'm on their side. I think that personally, my, my inclination, again, I don't speak for anybody. I haven't even pitched these shows yet. My inclination would be that the Defense Department gets a, gets a, a veto over the cut. They get to see the cut before it goes out. If there's something in there they don't like, we cut it. Now, we would make this clear from the beginning. If it's something you don't like politically, that's different than something that is a potential security risk. Anything that's a potential security risk, you say the word, we'll take it out. You know, if there's something on a submarine that's, or, or somebody says something in an interview that, that, that's stuff that shouldn't get out there, it's cut. But if somebody says, I'm not happy here because of this, that stays. So anyway, uh, I think those two ideas are great, and I, I enjoy working with them so much, and I think we could really do some, some real good with those. And, um, and unlike these you know, individual projects, which I'm constantly having to try to think up, those things are uh, second nature for me. I really just almost, you'd obviously have to prep them, especially the education one, but uh, I think they both could do a lot of good. I think they both be. I think they would both last a long time. You know, they have a have a, a shelf life. All right, moving on. Um, wow, I've been blabbing a long time. Although we did start late today. Ian Little, uh, I recently heard a very compelling theory that the elites started going hard on the woke stuff in the 2010s because they saw the Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street beginning to converge on certain issues, and it scared the daylights out of them. Now that is interesting. So the woke stuff was pushed to make sure the people stayed divided instead of turning against the elites. Do you think there's any validity in this? I don't know. Um, I don't know. I can give you my immediate knee-jerk reaction, Ian, and that is that I am uh, really surprised at how the last several years, the last two years especially, two, three years, has made me much more sympathetic to the kind of things that I would reflexively simply defend or deny, which is a good indication that you know you should always keep an open mind. Um, would I cover, oh, by the way, this is really important, would I cover the woke aspects of the military? I, that would be my mission, frankly. My mission would be to, to kind of, you know, uh, go right at that, right at it. And if we have to blur people and, 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 and names, or if we, talk, if we have to talk to people who've left the service because of this, then that goes in there. If there's a if there's a tank commander who um, uh, left the U.S. Army because he had to do something that was really PC or woke, I would want to talk to him too. But mostly, I would I would anticipate that show would be very positive. Uh, I think I mentioned this on not only mentioned it, I think I showed it on Stratosphere Studios. But of all the things I've seen that made me really feel good lately, uh, it was the um, was the ground crew of the Thunderbirds. I'm not going to go over it again. I'm sure I talked about it on, on Monday. But I watched uh, a couple videos of the of the ground, because the, there's a ground show that begins the, the thing. It takes, you know, it takes pretty much 15 minutes to get those guys in the jets, fire the jets up, get them, get them out there on the way to the flight line. So, that, so the whole pre-flight deal and getting on board the jets is, stepping to the jets is the term, uh, is 
they've got to do something with it. They don't have to, but why not? So, so all of the ground stuff that happens, getting the guys on the jet, and then the pre-flights and starting the engines, all of that is is extremely, extremely mechanical. It's robotic. It's designed to show precision. This is kind of like the you know the marine drill team, which is something I'd be interested in talking to, but that's not something I want to do because uh, flying a, onto a onto an aircraft carrier deck is one thing, or being in a in a submarine is another thing, or jumping out of an airplane is one thing. But the quickest way for me to get killed by the military would be by bayonet if I was to join that that marine precision unit. That would be fatal very quickly. So they go through this whole thing, and then and then as I said uh, last time, there comes a moment when they're ready to roll, when the jets are ready to go, and the 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 two enlisted men, who are the 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 crew for each one of these jets, comes right to the right side of the cockpit, and they're these two guys are looking at each other, and they throw the fastest salutes I've ever seen, like, like that, and then and this is new because I looked back and didn't see this in 2012 and 13. Once they get that salute, then they then they kind of break character, and and there they go. Um, so then they're, they're, they're doing these hand signals and, the, you know, they got these things. It's fantastic. It's tremendous. Anyway, uh, I don't know why I got off on that. Oh, um, yeah, ideas, changing ideas. So I, um, I have, well, completely changed my opinion about the uh, FBI. Uh, my esteem for the military is weakening, not not only based on uh, what this uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is saying, but also based on what some of these female lieutenants are saying. You know, why should I go out and defend America if you're going to take away my constitutional right to abortion? That's worrisome to me. In fact, the entire idea that active per active duty personnel can tweet things is to me shocking and exceedingly dangerous. I, I, I do not see that you have any right to do that at all while you're serving. I just think, I, I think that while you're in uniform, on duty, not even on duty, while you're in uniform, your social media has to be apolitical. You can say, hey, it's really nice here in the Philippines, but you don't get to talk about that kind of thing. I just don't think that's for public consumption. That's my personal opinion. You give up a lot of rights when you join the military. Um, but I used to think there's there's nothing inherently evil about, you know, Bill Gates or just as an example. I mean, he, he earned his money. I'm old enough to remember when when computers where you had to look at a piece of software and decide whether you wanted to buy it because if it was you couldn't know what operating system it was on. We're down to two now. Well, three. But Linux is kind of a niche market. But essentially, you're Mac and PC, right? But but with, before Microsoft, nothing guaranteed it would work in something else. So. So Bill Gates earned his money, and, and so did Elon Musk, so did Steve Jobs. I don't, I don't, I don't decry, them, decry them, any of that. Uh, but what they're doing with their money is starting to make me think m more like a progressive than I ever imagined and doesn't make me uh, very comfortable um, because uh, this is um, – yeah, he did steal his operating system. Because this this highest level stuff is genuinely alarming. All of this Davos stuff, you know, these uh, meetings they have in was it in Colorado once a year. All of the most powerful and rich people get together for a weekend. They do this relatively frequently. Uh, that should be alarming to you, especially since in many cases these people are competitors with each other. If you've got 
Bill Gates and Elon Musk and, um, and, and let's say, Steve Jobs and, and, and a bunch of people all in the same room talking about stuff. Uh, I, don't, I don't see any benevolent purpose for this. And I'll, go, and I'll go even further than that. Even if they were all angels and they were privately planning on a way, not to, not to kill everybody, but even if they were privately trying to find a way to make people as happy as possible, increase, increase human health, lifespan, all that stuff, if, they, if that's what they're doing, then there's no reason for them to be doing that in secret. Um, and, um, and this stuff is not my imagination. You know, I didn't, I didn't come up, I, I didn't invent this stuff. It's not a fevered dream of mine. Um, you know, the, the FDA changing the definition of what a vaccine is prior to the COVID vaccine because vaccines provide legal protection against lawsuit. If, if, if you put out a drug and, and it kills people, you can sue them, except for if it's a vaccine, if it's defined as a vaccine. And this particular uh, Victrola was of a pretty unique type, you know, these are, uh, mRNA vaccines. So the CDC, prior to the release of the vaccine, changes the definition of a vaccine. This is the CDC. And this actually happened. I saw the two pages. It used to say a vaccine is a, is a serum that provides immunity. That's what a vaccine always did. You're vaccinated, you're immune. Now it says a vaccine is a serum that provides, that, that, that uh, produces an immune response. That's a much lower bar to clear. If I, uh, if I take this little very tiny screwdriver that I'm playing with, this is my worry uh, object for the day, and I poke this into my finger here and break the skin, then by the definition of what a vaccine is, uh, this would be a vaccine. Hey, we got a raid. Hey, everybody, we're talking about the, uh, the, the um, uh, you know, the, the World Economic uh, Takeover Plans. So the Center for Disease Control says that a vaccine used to provide immunity. Now they say it provides an immune response. Cutting my finger generates a immune response. If I stick this thing into my hand, that will also generate a, an immune response. It'll become inflamed, uh, pus may formed. Antibodies will go after the, uh, the pathogens that break through the skin. So that means that legally, this makes, makes the standard of a vaccine. And this is not exactly a vaccine. So you broaden the definition of what, of what it is, and then you put this thing out that has had a lot of problems, and, and there comes a point when you cannot simply say that this is all business as usual. It's, it, it, I just, it, it, I don't believe it, and I don't think anybody else believes it. I think you have to be a special, a special kind of ostrich to not see how, how badly uh, degraded this stuff is. I mean, you know. Epstein didn't kill himself. He, he, he was murdered in front of the entire nation. And nothing happened. Nothing happened. Video cameras were down. Were they? Yeah, they're down for 12 minutes. Oh, well, let me see the broken cameras. It started working again. They just went out during the time he was hanging himself. Yeah, it's weird like that, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. Um, and I'm not going to go through all of that again. But uh, I'll tell you, your idea that, that woke is designed to keep people uh, separated so they don't attack the elites. There may be something to that because, um, look, I, I may be wrong about this. 
I have more confidence in, in the Second Amendment than my, than my wife does, although she's a crack shot and an American citizen. is behind it 100%. She comes from Russia. She doesn't see that it's going to make much of a difference, and I do, but that's one of those little disagreements that people can have. With that said, um, my understanding now is that Bill Gates owns one-third of the farmland in the United States. You, you think about that. One, if, if it turned out that Bill Gates owned one-third of all the computers in the United States, I would find that worrisome. But to own one-third of all of the farmland in the United States, I find that terrifying. And the only thing that um, comforts me in that particular regard is when I was a limo driver, um, I got a chance to drive a lot of executives to and from the airport. That's all we did. Lincoln Town Car from San Marino, Pasadena to LAX and back. So I got to talk to a lot of people when they wanted to talk, and sometimes they didn't, so I shut up. One of the people I was talking about, this is 88, 89, 90, somewhere in there. Uh, in L.A., it wasn't the Chinese we were worried about. It was the Japanese. Japanese were burning up. They're buying up everything. They were buying all of Los Angeles, just everywhere, all of it. And this guy was a, was a major real estate dealer. And I said, uh, you know, he wants conversation. I said, sir, should, you know, should I be worried about this? I mean, a lot of people are worried about this. I mean, I'm a little concerned that, you know, they're buying our country out from underneath us. And he said, Bill, I'll tell you something about real estate. I said, yes, sir. And he said, you cannot take it back to Japan with you. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's right, isn't it? He said, yeah. Uh, they can legally own it. That's true. But they can't take it back to Japan with them. So if it turns out that your concern is that they're going to do something nefarious, that's something to be worried about. But ultimately, ultimately, they cannot take the real estate back with them. And I thought, wow. So many years later, 20, 30 years later, I'm looking at this with Bill Gates owning all this farmland. And if all of a sudden food crises start to show up, let's just say, and let's just say that the guy who owns the farmland says, I want you to burn all that corn out there, and people are going hungry in America, my kind of response to Bill Gates would be, uh, this farm I'm standing on, Bill, Mullen Lobby, come and get it. I know you own it. And I respect the law, but when, when, when everything that you're doing is extra legal anyway, come and get it. Not denying that you have legal title to it. I'm saying come and get it. Now, I'm starting to sound practically like a communist, but I believe in the rule of law. And when the rule of law is being violated by elites who, and, who are rich, and, and they are doing it intent to intentionally cause destruction, right? So in other words, if Bill Gates owned a third of all the farmland in America, and he does, and let's say we're having a food crisis, right? And Bill Gates says, well, my God, we're having a food crisis. We need to ramp up production right now. We need to, um, we need to, uh, we need to increase the productivity of this land because we've got hungry people in America. Then I would say, Rock on, Bill Gates, you and your third of America's foreign land. Congratulations. I hope you, hope you make a ton of money. But that's not what happens, and that's not what's happening now. Uh, Marusha Dark in the uh, YouTube section says that uh, Alex Jones is being made to pay $1.75 trillion to the Sandy Hook families. You know what, Marusha, I'll tell you what I think about that. I think if I was Alex Jones, I'd be very glad to hear that. I'd much rather be charged with having to pay uh, $1.75 trillion than have to pay $20 million. I'd much rather have that kind of judgment against me um, because Alex Jones may have $20 million to lose. What's that old saying? Uh, you know, if, um, if you owe the 
bank $10,000, you got a problem. But if you owe the bank $10 million, the bank's got a problem. Um, that's ultimately it, you know. So uh, I, um, oh, no, she says, is it trillion or billion? It doesn't matter. It can charge them all they want to. It doesn't matter. It comes to a point when it's like, nope. Um, I'm aware of a case of somebody who had a large uh, gambling debt uh, with a, a casino in Las Vegas. Uh, it was in excess of a million dollars. And uh, this guy had a lot of credit, so he was able to run up a pretty big bill, and then he couldn't pay it. So he went to uh, court, and he, he just wasn't making any money. He was flat broke, and he owed a million dollars. So he went to court, and there was a settlement, and he said he had to pay the casino $630 a month for the next 420 years. That's kind of the thing where we are now, you know? Okay. All right, it's yours. Fantastic. The thing that concerns me is this great reset is a reset of something. They didn't choose the great turn. They didn't choose the great renovation. They didn't choose the great renaissance. They didn't say the great rebuilding, the great restructuring. They say the reset. And I think the reset is the debt. And I think that all of these guys like Bill Gates are taking electronic money, which is absolutely uh, ephemeral and dependent on the rule of law. And they're taking that electronic billions and billions of dollars and rapidly putting it into the real world and buying things that actually exist. And then when the Great Reset comes and we end up at this $30 trillion, or this, who am I kidding? That's a, that's, that's a, a while ago. $35, $40 trillion, $40,000 billion in debt that we are. Sooner or later, this is going to have to collapse. And so what I've heard speculation about, this is just speculation, the speculation is that there will be essentially a giant reset that all commercial debt will be zeroed. Now, you might think, hooray, I, I don't have to pay this or any more or that anymore. Yeah, but, you know, uh, your 401ks and all the rest of that stuff, all gone, all reset. Uh, and this is why when Klaus uh, Schwab says, uh, nobody will own anything, but everybody will be happy. First of all, that's what communism said. Turns out if everybody owns anything, nobody takes care of it. But that's not the point. When Charles, when Charles Schwab, not Charles Schwab, sorry, Klaus Schwab. When Klaus Schwab says nobody will own anything and everybody will be happy, my response would be, uh, I think what you meant to say, Mr. Schwab, is that, is that you won't own anything and everybody will be happy. And I'm not convinced that's true either. But certainly, when you say nobody will own anything, Somebody's going to own that private jet. It's going to be in somebody's name, right? What you really mean to say is that you will own everything. You all, will, will you, those small few of you, you'll own everything. And all of you will be happy. And, and he may be right about that. I'm not saying he's correct morally, but he psychologically may be right. Look, I've come to, I've come to believe that, that life has become so comfortable and there's so much to lose that people will put up with just about anything so long as their Netflix subscription continues. I really think that's it, you know? I think as long as people get to come home and live in more or less their same houses and they're, and they're you know, paying this stuff, they don't own it, then okay. We've already seen 
We've a first time chat from our free choice. If guilty with treason, property will be seized. I like the sound of that. I hadn't really thought about that aspect. But will people put up with this? Well, so far, yes. And the reason we know that is not through COVID. We know that because of um, iTunes. Used to be that you would pay $1.99 for a tune. You download it onto your device. You could put it on your burn on CD, whatever you want with it. You bought this version of um, Fun, Fun, Fun. And you don't have the right to sell it, but it's yours. You can do whatever you want with it. But they don't do that anymore. Now they say just for the low, low charge of $10 a month or whatever it is, you can download all the music you want to, but you don't get to keep it. And it's not yours. It's ours. You're just borrowing it. And when, when you see how easily that happens to people, then you're kind of there. My best friend growing up is a guy named Steve Stipp. And uh, unlike me, Steve has always had impeccable credit. He's, he's never been a guy who made a ton of money, but impeccable credit, he and his wife. And so while I was driving, you know, 25, 30-year-old clunkers and buying my $3 a gas at a time, which back then would at least get you, you know, 10 gallons or something, uh, Steve would get a new car every two years because he would lease them. And he liked new cars. Steve loved to drive. He still loves to drive. So he loved to drive. And I said, doesn't it bother you that you, that you never really own this car? You know? I said, look, uh, I just consider it a transportation fee. Um, if I was buying the car, then I would make the same payments that I'm making for the lease, except I wouldn't get to turn it in for a new one after two years. I'd still be making the same, uh, same thing. And I'd be paying the same thing. I said, but you don't own it. He said, what difference does it make? And I thought, you know, he's got a really good point there. If you look at this on the meta scale, I don't know. Uh, I... I have to tell you, the only time in the last, since November of 2020, the only time that I've ever been scared to the point where I was felt a little sick, that kind of fear, just a momentary kind of gut punch, was two or three days ago when I heard that an American lab had made a strain of COVID that was 80% fatal. Bubonic plague was 35% fatal. When I heard that uh, at American University, American Lab, when I heard that they had they had found a way to uh, do a strain of COVID that was 80% fatal, I about lost my mind. Uh, I really am. I about lost my my mind. Um, I don't know what the fatality rate of Ebola is, but it's it's close to 80%. Um, one of the strains of Ebola is pretty near 100%, but Ebola is difficult to catch compared to this. Very difficult to catch. And this is engineered to be contagious. Now, now, with that said, with that said, who was it who I saw who did this? Somebody, somebody I respect a lot, I think. Somebody reminded, somebody reminded me of the essential, uh, kind of the biological failsafe that's built into that. Hi, James from Honduras. Good to see you. Um, here's 
Uh, here's the only thing that gives me some solace here. Uh, an extremely contagious and extremely lethal disease doesn't last very long. Burns out real fast. Was it Damagino? Yeah, it was. It was Damagino. Um, because uh, there's a there's a number called the R R not number. It's 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 simple. It's like, on average, how many people will an infected person go on to infect? And if the number's below one, then it goes out pretty quickly. In fact, the number has to be relatively high. A COVID uh, type virus infects a lot of people. You know, one contagious person can infect a lot of people. It's extremely contagious, but its mortality is low. If the mortality is high, if it kills a lot of people, then basically it kills off its hosts before it can spread too much. In other words, if we saw this 80% uh, COVID thing out there right now, I would suddenly take uh, my, my uh, six-foot separation a lot more seriously than I did before. And everybody would lock down for, I mean, when I say lock down, I mean, you would, you would sit there with your gun pointed at the door and you would wait for this thing to burn itself out. That doesn't comfort me, though, because I have a feeling that uh, if, if this story is true, and it appears to be true, that uh, it's an 80% fatal form of COVID, I suspect, I suspect that, um, that this is a lever to push uh, those people who have not gotten the jab into getting the jab. I think that that's what this is. I think it's a—I don't think it's going to get unleashed— I, I think the threat of it is enough to make people go, ooh. Um, but I will say this. I'll say this. If this COVID thing didn't teach us that this is stuff that is, this is what we need, there is no possible justification for doing this. None. I don't care if you want to say, oh, it helps us with a cure for COVID. I don't care. You have no possible justification for this. That, that lab needs to be nuked and burned down. Um, it is inexcusable. There's no, the fact that they announced it to me is so tone deaf, right? I, I, I really don't, I don't know what to say, honestly. Um, when I saw it, that, that actually made me like momentarily like ill. Um, uh, uh, Feisty Mama 53 says, why do you think all of these babies are getting uh, ill with RSV all of a sudden? I don't know. Uh, Feisty Mama, I don't know why the leading cause of death in Alberta is unknown. I saw that news story repeated many places. Leading cause of death in Alberta, Canada is unknown. I wouldn't even think unknown would be in the top 10. But now it's number one. Unknown. I know I've talked about this before, but when people said that this uh, Victrola, uh, this V-word thing changes your DNA, I said, don't be ridiculous. Of course it doesn't. Vaccines don't change your DNA. Vaccines just expose you to pathogen. They just cause you to recognize things. And I was probably about three days away from taking that uh, Victrola. And then somebody said, I need to talk to you. And this is a person who has an enormous medical experience and said, oh, it does change your DNA. Really? No, it does. How? And they told me how. And I went, holy shit, that's not a vaccine. It's not. Um, so I saw a clip of Bill Gates from a year or two ago. He said, you know, when you get older, probably in your late 60s, 70s, probably good to get boosted once every six months or so. Is that right? 
I'm looking. Let me make sure I got all comments selected because otherwise I'll get chewed out. Chewed out, I said. All right, moving on. Let's see if we get pulled for this one. The only reason I could have that conversation is because I think we're down to zero strikes. Uh, so I'm feeling feisty. By the way, everybody now, music channels, uh, Odin's Men, which I've been watching a lot of, all that stuff. Uh, everybody's complaining about censorship on YouTube. And uh, and I, I actually, you know what would be the, the, the absolute, I think the, the complete proof to me would be if somebody like Gates or somebody were to say, everybody needs to get a booster shot once every six months. I would say, okay, Bill, would you be willing to do that on camera? Absolutely. Okay. Would you be willing to do it if I got to pick the syringe? What? You heard me. I'm going to come to, I'm going to go to a reputable source. I'm going to get a dose of the vaccine that's out there for everybody, and we will inject you right here on camera. So it wasn't like he gets, you know, the rainwater injection. I'd be very curious to know. Anyway, moving on. Um, Ian Little. I recently heard a very compelling theory that the... Oh, sorry. I did that one already. Beg your pardon. Eric Blake. Hey, Eric. Greetings from Central Florida. Bill wasn't quite the eye of the storm, but still I am as of now proud to Hurricane Survivor. Congratulations, Ian. And which other one? Um, I went through a couple in Bermuda and I... And when I was, I lived in Florida for 25 years and I never got one. I think Andrew hit when I was in college at Gainesville. Uh, now, uh, watching a recent Virtue Signal, I admit I was deeply disturbed when you suggested that maybe Independence Hall should be destroyed because of Brandon's speech in front of it. That was hyperbole. Um, I trust you were half joking to make a finer point, but I know you're aware of the value of monuments to our heritage of the American experiment. So why destroy those monuments? Because we don't like the left misusing them again, hyperbole. Why give them the win of helping them destroy the legitimacy of great things? After all, they're the ones who want to tear down statues, right? Yes, I, when I said it should be burned to the ground, I was referring to it in terms of uh, sterilization. That's how it made me feel. I would never burn down Independence Hall. If I did that, I wouldn't believe that any of this could be restored. And I do believe it can be restored. How about I uh, just don't mentally let them own anything that isn't rightfully theirs? As Zoe often noted, the vital thing is the power of the imagination. Don't let them take over yours. Independence Hall represents the ideals of the founding. Don't think of it any other way. That's good advice. Uh, P.S. Your insights on last week's lounge with the old airplane analogy pretty much reassure me that you don't really want Independence Hall destroyed, but still I'd love a clarification. Hyperbole. Uh, I, uh, I've said it a million times. Um, Here's a, here's a Halloween, oh, I don't know, it's peanuts, and it looks like Lucy, I think Lucy Van Pelt should be burned to the ground. Uh, Jared Bryant, oh Bill, oh Jared, my conception of conservatism, and who are you to speak to me about conservative, by the way, before you even finish the sentence, I am the definition of conservatism. There's anybody who is, who is there, I, there is no one to the right of me. Just want to get that out of the way. Uh, my conception of conservatism and my sense of allegiance to right-leaning politicians has really evolved in the last few years. I wonder to what extent your own views have evolved. What would you add, drop, or clarify from your What We Believe series from back in the day? Thanks. Wow. Um, yes, my uh, opinion has, uh, has evolved. Um, I think 
I think the 2022 Republican Party elected Republican officials after this election. I, I, I personally think that this will be the most solidly conservative group of Republicans that we've had since the Civil War and maybe ever. Um, what is the first name of the Arizona candidate? Is it Kerry Lake? Uh, I've seen her hand the press its ass. This is this isn't just a weapon it's the solution right donald trump was great at it and uh carrie lake yeah and i'll tell you who's great at it too is um is ron DeSantis. i saw something and and here's here's how i know that that we're, we're slowly learning slowly i saw ron DeSantis get asked a question right after ian and and here's the question so a cnn or somebody saying uh, uh governor i wonder if you'd like to address the issue uh, uh about the uh, slow response that you've had to the uh, Ian. he doesn't even want to finish that whoa 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 stop it right there okay this is why nobody trusts you people right you're you're just simply saying slow response you have no evidence of that whatsoever we were we were absolutely primed and ready to go with this thing we've moved as fast as we can and the people on the ground say so so i'm not going to let you just put this out there without comment. We had a great response to this. We're doing our very best, level best. The people in the field are doing great things and so on. And I'm not going to let you get away with saying this. Kind of, and that's exactly what it needs, right? It just needs just to stop it right there. Um, and, and, and Carrie Lake has been, you know, she's just been, she's just loaded for bear. She's just ready to go. They, they know what they're doing. They know who they're fighting and, and they don't engage. They don't engage on their territory. And because they don't engage on their territory, that's a win. Um, uh, just the fact that, um, uh, was it Tulsi Gabbard? Like I said, guys, our disk drive is pretty much full. I'm doing a lot of paging to memory, you know? RAM is, is stacked, and I'm, and I'm just a little bit of, of disk space left, and I'm just doing paging, you know? It takes a while for me to remember these things. Tulsi Gabbard, right? Was, she was the one who was the former darling of the Democratic Party, just coming out guns blasting man i'm here to tell you um these people are the end of the left because the thing about the left and we've said it a hundred times they have no coercive power over us all they have is the ability to use our decency against us the ability to shame us into silence you're a racist oh i better shut up nobody wants to be called a racist Racists want to be called racist, but people who aren't racist, they'll, they'll, they'll crawl over broken glass. So, so they don't have machine guns. They don't have tanks pointed at us. They've just got our consciences, and, and they've also got our consciousness. First time chat from uh, uh, Johnny uh, Schiff's fake news. Yeah, um, that's exactly what it is. But, but it has to be squashed immediately um look i i know I, I have i have such mixed feelings about this uh i know for a certain fact that that donald trump uh showed us what just his presence showed us what we're up against and what's how deep this rot is and i would like to see trump beat biden more than anything in the world but if i had to pick the team I would pick DeSantis and Lake. I, I, 
I just don't see a solution to this uh, divisiveness. And uh, well, let me rephrase that. I think that, that DeSantis and Lake don't generate the kind of allergic response that Donald Trump does. And I think you could win a lot more people over with sensible, rational, good government. Now, with that said, with that said, I don't think DeSantis would run against Trump under any circumstances. It's very possible he would be Trump's running mate. That'd be a hell of a ticket. I think that'd be great. And every time I see Joe Biden speak, especially when he spoke in front of Independence Hall, I said, you know what? I don't care anymore. I don't care anymore. I am all in for, for Trump. And I just want to see Trump beat this miserable, lying bastard. I want him to beat him into the ground. I just, I want to see that really badly. So my head tells me DeSantis, but my heart tells me Trump, because I want, I really want to see that. Is it good for the country? I suspect in the long term, sometimes it's not. But then you get to this business of, you know, I don't know. Um, yeah, it would be... Uh, my personal opinion, for what it's worth, would be that if Trump uh, wins in 2024, he'd be the first president since uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt to win three elections for presidency. That's what I think. Um, all right. Let's see what happens. Because, you know, um, this is an ongoing uh, thing on the Stratosphere Lounge. Uh, some people are for it. Other people are again it, but I'm for it, so I'm going to check again because when we did this last time, the numbers were looking good, and I think the numbers are looking like suddenly great. So let's go to betting odds where people have skin in the game. Oh, good golly, Miss Molly. We are now very, very, very close to the, to the widest spread that had ever been in the house. I told you before in the end of somewhere around beginning of August, the, the Republicans started dropping and the, and the Democrats started rising. Uh, now in the House, according to the betting pool, the Republican chance of control of the House is 88.9%. That's up 2.5% in the last day. Now, when I first started looking at these, Republicans had a slight edge on the Senate, 56-57%. And then when this, this collapse thing happened, they went down to like 27%. And now they are at, where are you? I want to be above water. Oh, oh my. Wow. Wow. All right, I'm going to just show, I'm going to show you this one uh, because this to me is interesting. Now, people have said, well, this isn't, you know, this isn't legitimate for this reason or that reason. Maybe, maybe, but I've done a number of, uh, did a firewall and things on, um, on distributed intelligence, so I can't abandon something that I believe to be true just because I don't like the, the results it's spitting out. I'm not a climate scientist after all. So take a look at this. This one's really interesting. Um, here is, uh, as of this moment, as we record this, here's the Senate. Now look at this. You can see um, in somewhere around July or August, there's a big drop for the Republicans, then a rebound, then a, then a really steep drop. But look at the far right of this thing. The recovery has been Better and better and better. But look at the last couple days. It's vertical. It's a, it's a vertical line. It's it's press it's press. <laughs> I'm so excited I can't even speak anymore. It's pra practically 
exponential. That approval line for Republicans and the disapproval for Democrats is nearly a vertical line. It's never been that steep with the possible exception of early November. Um, so, you know, 60% chance of getting the Senate. And, uh, and, and fortunately for us, the election is getting close. They don't have a whole lot of time. And, um, and the momentum is not, uh, the momentum is not slowing down. It's accelerating. Uh, so here's what's, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I, anybody know what site it is? I should, uh, be, should be happy to do that for you. Where to go? Uh, I think it's called, oh, I'm sorry. It's right here. Yeah, that site is um, electionbettingodds.com. I put that in the comments, but I think you pretty much get it. One word, electionbettingodds.com. And it, it's, man, I'll tell you, when we were at that, at that nadir, when things were really looking low, I thought, man, I, what, what, how much more beating are the people going to have to take? Like I said, I think it was caused by, I think the abortion thing had something to do with it, but not much. I think the Mar-a-Lago raid had a lot to do with it, and I think that gas prices going from $7 to $6 had a lot to do with it. But man, it is it is just, yeah, somebody in the comments said escape velocity. Um, Taylor 3006 says, I honestly don't see our, our way voting. I don't see us voting our way out of this mess. And I'll tell you what, Taylor, you're right. I'm not saying I agree with you. I am saying this. We will know in November whether or not the system is recoverable through electoral means. These, I have been told that there is a, a margin of cheating. Uh, now, what I seem to see in 2020 was that the margin continued to get adjusted to produce whatever it needed. But let's just say for the sake of argument that this goes the way it goes. And, um, and we even pick up a couple of governorships. So we have the House and the Senate, let's say, just for the fun of it. Immediately, immediately, even before you start going after Biden and everybody else, immediately you have to you have to have the House draft legislation calling for universal election integrity, paper ballots, and election day. You have to have that and you have to be prepared in the way that Kerry Lake is prepared and DeSantis is prepared. You have to know in advance that they're going to come and give you the whole voter suppression thing and you've got to give them the they got to give them all all the whole nine yards, both barrels, everything guns blazing. Don't even let them finish the sentence. Right? I would get that there and I would call it the voter election, the the election integrity law, and then I would make Biden veto it and I'd bring it back I bring it back and I'd bring it back. He vetoes it. I'd bring it back. I'd make him veto it every week. I'd make him veto it every week. The example that it can be done right, by the way, somebody said uh, Iowa has near zero voter fraud. The, the standout state was Florida. Florida is what, the third most populous state in the country? Fourth? It's either Texas or Florida. It's, it's growing. And they got the results in without any cheating, got them in on time, and so on. Never, ever, ever. You, you start this the day that they're sworn in, in January, and you never, ever, ever go on camera. You never have a Republican speak. Any question that's directed at Republicans anywhere, you never, ever answer a question until you get that out there. Uh, you know, uh, uh, speaker, whoever. Um, 
uh, you know, the president has accused you of this, or, or the president, what, what do you think about the gas bill? Well, before I get to the gas bill, I would like to, I would like to uh, once again say, we can't understand why the president of the United States doesn't want fair elections. Uh, we don't understand his, his repeated veto of this. It's very clear. It's extremely clear. We don't know why he continues to do it, but I guess he has his own agenda in that regard. I'd like to draw your own conclusions. Anyway, with regard to the gas bill, that's what I would do. I'd never let it drop. I'd run it into the ground. I would absolutely run it into the ground. And then I would, uh, I would find somebody. You don't get to appoint uh, the chief justice. Uh, sorry, you don't get to appoint the attorney general. That's all still in uh, Biden's control. Again, assuming we, we do both of these things. But you do get to appoint special prosecutors. And, uh, and those special prosecutors... I would get going. I'd get them. I'd have them. I'd have them powering up right now. Certainly, if the election goes the way we think it could go, I would then get them wound up. Area 51 says Bill Whittle for House Speaker. That's very kind of you. You know, somebody said that to me once a long time ago. I said, look, I have no interest in running for office. I'm a fundamentally honest person. I, 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 I just don't want to be a part of it. And somebody pointed out to me that you don't have to be a member of the House of Representatives to be Speaker of the House. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I think I could be a pretty good Speaker of the House of Representatives, frankly. Yes, so I'd start firing up the investigations, and I'll tell you who I would take. I'll tell you what I would do right now. I saw, again, Dan Bongino. I interviewed him a, a bunch of times when I was working on NRA TV. Uh, he's a super guy. He's just a, just a terrific guy, very passionate, real patriot, obviously, former FBI guy. He's a law enforcement and all those things. Dan is a, a real man and a real American. Um, I saw him with a um, FBI whistleblower. So if it were me, I would grab, I would grab uh, Trey Gowdy, who uh, certainly isn't unemployed, but he's not currently in office. I'd grab Trey Gowdy, and I would say, Trey, here's the list that we have so far of FBI whistleblowers. I want you to take this list, and I want you to work your way up. And I would be willing to, if I was the president, I would say, or, or if I was just a member of the House, it was, I would say, I would go on a scale of one to 10, I'd go to eight and a half in terms of, in terms of deal making. In other words, on a scale of one to 10, I would go to eight and a half, I might even go to nine in terms of who we would grant immunity to in order to get testimony higher up. Because I think the thing's rotten from head to tail, but I'd be willing to give up all of the all of the majors and colonels in order to get the generals um so somebody just said uh, i i wouldn't i couldn't tolerate the skullduggery i think i could i would cut right through the skullduggery i just simply i would just simply defeat them by simply doing what they're doing now just we're not buying that anymore somebody says no not trey why not trey i saw trey i thought trey was awesome Trey is a former uh, prosecutor. I'm willing to listen to reasonable arguments. But I remember during the last uh, Obama, uh, two years of Obama, he was the only thing that was there. You know, it was just, it was him. Uh, and he's a former prosecutor. And or, or I would take, I, you know what I'd do? I would take, I would take Josh Hawley and I would take um, Trey Gowdy and a couple of others. I'd get together with Ted Cruz in the Senate. And then I would also make a serious pitch to the governors. And for once, 
just once, I'd love to live to see it, just once, I would like to see the Republican Party on all levels of government get together and say, we have one mission right now, one, and that is to recover the election integrity system, and that means an election day. My California ballot got here two weeks ago. Uh, our wonderful operations manager, Shelly, said, I've got your uh, ballot here. It comes to my mailing address, not to my personal address. And I said, great. Um, I'll tell you what, did you, see if you can pick up maybe another four or five for me, will you? So I don't want to waste my time, you know, checking on people's porches. Uh, the number of reasons for not having an election day are, are practically infinite, not the least of which is that something could happen between now and then. But in any event, this is more important than the border. It's more important than a woke military. It's even more important than big tech. It is where you go. So if I had to, I would have a special prosecutor for election integrity and uh, a look into 2020. I would have a special prosecutor for big tech. I'd look into violations of the very simple, simple, simple law. Um, if you can prove, and this seems to me beyond easy, if you can prove that YouTube censors videos politically, not for disturbing content, but politically, and this is, this is beyond question. I mean, forget the assertions. The evidence for this is overwhelming. If you can prove that YouTube censors people for their political beliefs, not just anybody who speaks against uh, the vaccine or whatever, if you can show that they are making an ideological decision in their censorship, applies to Twitter, applies to Facebook, applies to all of them, you don't have to come up with any new laws. I know many of you know this, but some of you don't. If I post... Um, a Roadrunner cartoon on YouTube. Uh, Warner Brothers doesn't get to sue YouTube. They can come after me, but YouTube is immune. And the reason YouTube is immune is because of this law that was enacted several years ago when this stuff was starting to really catch fire. And the law basically said that YouTube, Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook, all of them are carriers. In other words, they are private businesses that provide a hosting aspect, and they do not make any editorial decisions. They might pull pornographic content off or whatever the case may be, right? If, however, it turns out that they are making political judgments, then they are no longer a carrier. Now they are an editor. Now they are making editorial decisions. That makes them a publisher. And if they're publishers, then they are liable for anything that happens on their program. So... You are either a carrier, in which case it's like, I have nothing to do with it, or, yeah, I had a lot to do with it. In that case, you're no longer got nothing to do with it. You are now an editorial thing, and you don't have the tax protections or the legal protections, and so there you go. And so you don't have to pass new laws, although I would love to RICO these people into the ground. I think that would be really fun. I would like to RICO them into the ground, um, but this should be a slam dunk. So if I had to pick my priorities, I would say election integrity first. Tech second, border third. That's how bad things are. I might even put I might even put fracking ahead of border. I'm not sure. Re restore restarting our energy uh, things. Um, but I would I would go after them. Um, I I I I 
I, I triangulate and move my opinion about things based on where I perceive the truth to be. The fact is, YouTube has the right to censor my videos because it is a private company and I agree to their terms of um, their end user agreement. But if their end user agreement that I agree to is in violation of law, then F them. Tell them to take a long walk on a short server and uh, and get everything going. Um, and I would also, you know, in my spare time, if I had a couple special prosecutors lying around, that kind of thing, I would launch an investigation into the January 6th investigation. I would look at that very carefully. I would look at lots of stories about people who were there and FBI guys, and I'd look into all of it. But in any event, um, I would do that. And then uh, the nice thing about, about having the House and the Senate is you can pass legislation knowing that it'll be vetoed, but if you are clever and if you, and if you have any sense of how to win this uh, war of ideas, which is what we we're talking about earlier with Kerry and, and, and Ron DeSantis and stuff, then I would pass legislation whose goal would not be to be passed, even though if it was passed, that would solve the problem. I would draft legislation that was designed to produce an, a veto that would be indefensible. That's what I would do. I would organize this thing across all levels of government, and I would say, in order to recover this, we are going to pass legislation knowing that Biden is going to is going to veto it, and so we have to pass legislation where the veto will be the answer to the question, right? That's what we have to do. We have to put them in a box where there is no way out. They either he either signs it and it becomes law, or he vetoes it, and that opens up all kinds of questions. You make it absolutely nonpartisan, but you got them. For example, I would say. I would sponsor legislation, let's say, and my, my bill, uh, House bill, uh, you know, uh, bill bill number, uh, number one would be basically this. Um, while we fully respect the privacy of individual Americans, there's no question that people in the public sphere lose that right to privacy, and furthermore, people who run for government have an obligation for transparency. So, in the interest of providing uh, integrity, transparency, security in an ever more complex world, this legislation states that every member of Congress, the presidency, every secretary, every governor on the federal level and on the and on the and the governorship of the states have to pass not any ideological test, they have to pass a simple cognition and memory test because some politicians are so old now and our lifespans are increasing so much. This is how I I phrase it. I I I just make it as nonpartisan as possible used to be, you know, you, you retired at 65, you got your heart attack at 67, but now people are living in their 80s and 90s and they're still in office. So we are not asking for a special test. We're not asking to come up with a test. We're not saying any of that stuff. We're saying that the standard psychological test that is a simple test for memory and retention and the degradation of, of, of mental capacity over time, that that test has to be taken every two years by anybody serving in, in one of these positions. That's what I would do. I'd, I'd, I'd sponsor that bill, I'd get them to pass it, and I'd make it streamlined and very easy. And then I would say, then I'd go on, a, on offense about this. I would say, this is not an IQ test. 
It's not an IQ test. It's not, it's not measuring how smart you are. It's certainly not measuring your ideology. It's measuring how good your memory is and what kind of, what, what is, your, is your ability to process information. It is not an intelligence test. It's certainly not an ideological test. It's a simple, longstanding, highly, highly used test to determine decreased mental capacity and and who um caused yeah that there it is uh kenning sorry kenigata channel sorry if i got that wrong cognitive decline that's right and so you pass it and then you let him veto it and then and then you then you get on your on your uh your start blowing your silver trumpet every member of the republican party on the in the House, every Republican in the Senate, every Republican governor has agreed to take this cognitive test. Every one of them has agreed to it. I have to agree to it. Uh, when you get on a jet, you have to show that the pilot of that jet has to have a physical every six months. He has to pass simulator tests every six months because if you've got 300 people behind you, you want to know that the guy's not going to have a heart attack. You want to know he can remember what airport he's flying to. And if that's good for 300 people, it seems like it should be especially good for 300 million people. Um, I think that is what I would do in November if things go the way they do. And I might have to have a talk with my, uh, a very brief talk with my extremely uh, busy uh, acquaintance, Ted Cruz, on this subject and just say, hey, Let's let's play the cards we're dealt. At the House, we have the Senate. We can get legislation to the president's desk. We can get legislation to his desk that we know he will veto. So let's put this in such a way that the veto is an admission of guilt. Let's do that. That's what I would do. That's a damn good idea. Maybe maybe they'll listen to me for once. Who knows? Okay. Eric Blake again, 103. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm going um, to skip this one, Eric. It's the question about the, uh, McCarthy's new commitment to America. I'm going to skip it because I don't know anything about it. I've heard about it. I don't know anything about it. I don't know what's in it. Uh, and, um, and that's, uh, I'm sorry. I just, I, 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 I would have nothing to say about it uh, other than, it sounds very similar to what I just talked about. It'd be nice if the Republicans all got on the same page and sold something positive instead of saying those people are bad. Here's a better way to lower lower uh, medical bills and improve the quality of your service. Here's how we lower gas prices. Here's how we lower inflation. Here's the tough work we have to do to secure our border. Here's it is. Here it is. Here it is. Bam, 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 bam. Get everybody who's carrying an R after the name to sign on the dotted line and don't let them out of it. And if it turns out, if it turns out that I that I'm running the RNC, let's say, and I've got something like that cognitive test, or I've got something like, you know, here's a plan to do the things that conservatives would do to recover this country. If I had a Republican who wouldn't sign that, I would very quietly tell them, if you don't agree with this, then you don't agree with the core principles of this party. There's nothing uh, regional about this. There's nothing in this that is in any way on a borderline issue. We're not even asking you to sign off against abortion or anything like that. We're just saying these are constitutional common sense steps. And if you are not going to put your name on this, then 
we will disown you and you certainly will be primaried and you certainly will not get any help from us in terms of election anymore. And then now, if I've misjudged you, please make your case for why you wouldn't sign this. But I'd get everybody's name on it. I'd get signatures. I would. I'd, I'd get signatures because because the the big problem is having Republicans start to run when when things start when, when the left starts making noise. It's not when the population shifts. You could make the strong case that, that, that a representative has an obligation to shift position a little bit. Ideally, you'd like to represent uh, hire a new representative. Job of the representative is to represent the people. If the national mood is changing, okay, that's one thing. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about people deserting because a small microscopic group of people are making so much noise that they're bullying people into they're bullying cowards into into abandoning their post. Nope, you've signed on. You're here. If you if you leave, you're AWOL. And furthermore, now that I'm on a roll about this. Furthermore, I would go I would go further. If I was the RNC chair, I would say something else. Yes, I'm asking all of us to collectively sign this statement of our principles. And and that may sound like a negative, but here's the positive. An attack on any of us is an attack on all of us. And anytime any one of us gets targeted by this by this Alinsky method that you get isolated and targeted, you are now, oh, now the heat is on you because you did this, then the entire Republican Party on the federal level will immediately come to your aid with a joint statement from the capital steps saying we 100% support this candidate. He's being maligned. He's being slandered. He's being libeled. And we're not going to stand for it. He is absolutely representative of our principles. So if they're attacking him, they can attack all of us too. That's what it is. And that would provide a little cover for those people who are a little bit less uh, spineless than uh, a little bit uh, more spineless than the rest of us, right? Get them on board, make them sign, tell them if you don't believe in these principles, you're not a member of this party, really. But nevertheless, uh, here we are. Let's go at these guys together. The hour is late, and there is much to do. I would, I would just clean up. I would be, I would be, I'd, I'd be rather than Speaker of the House, I'd be a really great RNC chair. I would change the logo. That's the first thing I would do, I think. I would change the logo. I'd get rid of that ridiculous, absurd, two-year-old design blocky elephant thing with this atrophied trunk. Let's just get it so we can all see just how pathetic this thing is. Um, I'm going to spend a moment of uh, not dead air, but somewhat uh, quiet air to make a point here. See, this is why having some of these uh, artistic backgrounds can be useful. Hang on. Here it is. Okay, so here's here's the current logo for the Republican Party. Oh, well, that's a little smaller than I thought it would be, but I guess it doesn't really matter, does it? All right, so it's a little fuzzy and blocky, but you get the idea. That's an elephant, is it? Look at that trunk. There's no eyes. There's no nothing. It's just, it's a, if I was if I was in charge of the Democratic National Committee, this is the logo that I would design for the Republican National Committee. Now, give me a second, because this is something I've had a lot of experience with. It's just going to take me a moment to do. Um, just one second. It'll be worth it, I promise you. In fact, this is so important that I'm going to have to put on the cogitation spectacles. All right. Hang in there. Hang in there. Don't go away. Yeah, that's what I want. I would then... Oh, that's not bad. Um, stay with me, gang. Talk amongst yourselves. It would be worth the wait, believe me. Mm, you know, it's, a, it's 
a start. It's not ideal, but I'll give you an idea what I'm talking about. It's actually a little too dark. Oops, hang on, hang on, sorry. Hang on. You'll see where I'm going with this in a second. This is why people who speak uh, the language of uh, media ought to be in the business of media. Now, I'm going to do a couple of these. I'm just going to see what comes. But as a starter, I'm telling you right now, I could change the colors, but I think this is probably a little bit too negative, but it'll give you an idea for the new, R uh, oops, for the new RNC uh, logo. One moment, please. Where did it go? Did you go underneath? Yes, you did. Okay, here. This is this would be my first, uh, one of my first choices would be this guy. Come on. All right, I don't know why it's doing that. I'll just cut it again. You want to be that way? That's fine with me. I can play that game too. I can do screen grabs too. You're not the only one here. Windows. Here we go. Do it. Do it. So here would be one choice. I said that's a little harsh. Maybe exactly what we need. I'm just going to find one more just to let you know that there are thousands of these things out here. Um, uh, I want something that's really singing to me here. Uh, page one of 1,791 choices. Come on. I'll know it when I see it. I'll know it when I see it. Uh, come on. I know dead air is dead air, and it's longer for me than it is for anybody else, but you get the idea. Uh, that one almost looks like Cthulhu. That's pretty cool. Let me, um, let me modify this, refine this a little bit. Let's see what this gets us. <laughs> yeah, now we're talking. Um, <laughs> this is so easy. It really just makes you want to, you know, just really does make you want to just wonder why, why this isn't done sometimes. Uh, got a whole page of stuff. Oh, oh, wow, that's wild. <laughs> Again, this one's, this is not what I'm going for. It's just made me laugh. You want to scare the hell out of the Democrats and you want to get uh, kids on board, you make, uh, you make this your, uh, your new RNC logo. <laughs> I'll see you later. Uh, after we kick your ass. Uh, let me see if I can find one more that's a little more in line with what I'm looking for here. Oh, my. All right, why not? Uh, again, I'm not going to waste your time because uh, I, I could probably do this in a, in a, you know, in a half an hour, but uh, I don't have a half an hour. But I will give you one more. I'll give you one more. <laughs> Put this on the side of the presidential limousine uh, when you get the presidency back and then tell me how they feel about this. Look at this. Ready? Come on, do it. Woof. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. You, you, your logo seems very angry. It's because we are angry. We're extremely angry. We're very sick and tired of what you communists have done to destroy the greatest country in the history of the world, and you haven't succeeded. Now we are coming back. And by the way, uh, I would add one thing, which I, I've always felt would have been um, really just excellent for this. I'll delete him, and I'll delete him. But I will keep this one. Uh, so underneath this logo, I would have the I would have the um, I would have the uh, the slogan of the uh, RNC, and underneath this picture where it says Laura Nipson, it would say, "Don't be an ass." That would be our motto: "Don't be an ass." Period. That'd be it. And it's game over for them. Game over, man. Don't be an ass. Okay, that's all we're asking. We're just asking that of anybody. Just don't be an ass. You, know, you can do whatever you want to. It's a free country. Do whatever you want to. Just don't be an ass about it. That's all. What's so hard to figure out? Nothing. Yep, we're out of your hair. Good. Uh, oh, by the way, um, this being uh, tax season coming up, um, here's our plan to do your taxes on the back of a postcard, uh, index card, really, if um, if you're if you got good handwriting. Here's our plan for your um, for your income tax. Uh, here's how it works. Uh, Currently, the income tax code stretches to the ceiling, and having just uh, taken a look at my income tax returns, uh, it's 40 pages of numbers. But uh, under our plan, here's how it works. On line one, put down the amount of money you made in the last year. On line two, multiply that times 0.17, which is the current tax rate across the board, and whatever that number is, that's what you write a check to. Done. You have a good day. All right. How hard is this? Let's see. Well, let's say um, let's say I made a you know had a decent year and out there in the barista business or something. So let's see how long it takes me to prepare my taxes here. I made uh, eighty-seven thousand three hundred and sixty-five dollars last year. Times point one seven equals fourteen thousand eight hundred and fifty-two dollars. Here you go. Thank you. Done. Next. Next. See, this is the thing that is that is both so frustrating and also so liberating about the people that we're up against, and that is that they are so incompetent and their ideas are so old that they can be very, very easily defeated, and then you have to ask yourself, so why aren't we defeating them? Then you get down to because of the incompetence. It's not even, it's not even the professional incompetence. The rhetorical incompetence of the Republican Party is the only thing that allows these communists to survive. The rhetorical incompetence of Republicans, their inability to come out and say, speak the truth and run for it. And, and they, I get the feeling, I get the feeling that um, this election will get us more of those people. Don't be an ass. Um, there's an interesting question uh, from Spencer R. Rackley IV. What happened to the Adler Planetarium? Went there this past Friday, and it sucked. Uh, I know I've been to the Adler. Where is the Adler Planetarium? I've been there. Is it Bradenton? Was oh, Chicago? Chicago. Uh, well, I, right now I can tell you, since it's in a major city, it undoubtedly has a 
Zeiss Planetarium in it. Uh, let's see what they got in there. I'm sure it's a Zeiss. Um, what you got in there? Come on. What you got there, bud? I I don't know. It looks fine on their website, but that's what you would expect. Oh, there's a there's an ambulatory. Oh, that takes me back. Uh, so they so it's almost certainly still got the star projector it had originally, and that's a a Carl Zeiss machine. Um, it's uh, the Spitz machine that we had, the Miami Planetarium. It's aluminum. Uh, it's light, thin, moves very, very quickly in three axis. Uh, the Adler, the Zeiss Planetarium, it's an Adler, and in the New York Planetarium, the older one, is three times the size of the Zeiss, uh, of our Spitz. It's six times the weight, and it's made out of uh, lead and uranium, uh, depleted uranium. It can change a change of a star can move 15 degrees in, in only 15 minutes. Uh, well, it, if it was digital, if the planetarium's gone digital, then it's not a planetarium anymore. It's a, it's a theater. Planetariums have planetarium projectors. So let's make them, that's what makes them a planetarium. I told you we went down to see the planetarium in San Diego a couple months ago. It was horrible. Horrible. It used to have the Spitz STS. It was like the it was like the Excelsior class. It was this experimental single spheres, wickedly brilliant thing and I go in there and a couple months ago and it's just gone there's nothing there it's just a crappy projection screen tv I mean a really crappy one blurry and nasty and I might as well just use my ipad man the, the magic thing about a planetarium is the planetarium projector that's what makes a planetarium a planetarium might as well just otherwise stay home um and even a crappy planetarium like the Zeiss which is fantastically expensive uh still gives you that effect um uh, what was it called? 512? Was it? I don't know if Phil's watching. Spitz made a lightweight planetarium for um, planetarium projector for schools and stuff called the 512, which I still think of as extremely modern because it's brand new. But the fact of the matter is, it was brand new in 1979 or whatever. So let's see. Uh, Spitz. Something like that. I'm curious. There it is. Yep. Nope. Yes, that's a 512. So this thing's kind of like the the smaller brother of the Space Transit Planetarium. It's newer. <laughs> I never really looked at it that way. This thing is like a it's like a it's like a half of the uh, Space Transit Planetarium. It's like they took one half of the of the sphere and then took the other half of the thing and and that's what you get. Uh, but as I remember, it was pretty cool. Uh, some people, um, uh, to my pleasant surprise, uh, some people here uh, know who I'm talking about when I say Doug Gagan. Doug Gagan uh, worked with us at the Miami Planetarium. He, uh, he was the second best console operator who ever lived. And, um, and he's a great guy. He was a real, real, he was a real inspiration to me. Um, he passed away not too long ago. But uh, there was, a, was it Coral Springs? There was a new high school, high school, put up in Dade County, might have been Southern Broward, and they put a planetarium into the high school, and it had a tilted dome, which was very cool, had a 512, that was very cool. We were like, man, this place is awesome, and it was a small dome, which has its downside, but but the good side is the stars are just razor sharp. We went up there and looked at this thing, oh, it's fantastic, and Doug was the director. We went, oh, Doug, congratulations, man, you got, you got, the, you got the pick of the litter here. And then after a short period of time, um, 
we uh, found out the next day that uh, somebody had burned it to the ground. Had burned it to the ground, uh, set fired it, and got it so hot in there that the aluminum dome melted down to the ground. And I thought, well, that wasn't very nice uh, at all. And I thought, you know, it just sucks, poor dog. And why would somebody do that? And then, to my astonishment, they rebuilt it. Just rebuilt it, if I remember correctly. Like I said, hard drive errors. But, uh, yeah, burned it down. So they said, well, all right, screw you. We're not going to get burned out of this. So here's, we're, we'll, we'll do it again. That was one of those uh, little days where you actually feel good about things. All right, so let's see what we've got here. Dave Olson, Eric Blake, and then Trevor. So I can probably do them all. I think, I can, yeah, I think I'll get to all the Facebooks today. Dave Olson. Uh, hi, Bill. So SpaceX is planning to launch a Falcon Heavy early on Halloween morning. Their live stream commentary is the one thing their company does badly. I kind of agree. But the Right Angles team of almost live coverage of the first Falcon Heavy test launch was wonderful and a lot of fun. Is there any chance of rousting yourselves out of bed to do a live show? Yes. Yes. Um, I will keep looking for that, and, uh, and I, will pro I will propose that. I see, uh, 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 I don't know if Dave has left the room. Anybody happen to know what time of day that launch is? Because the Falcon Heavies, oh, that's just a, a beast. It's just a, there's that one shot from the first flight of the Falcon Heavy where it's almost horizontal. And I just, oh, that's awesome. And and I know, like I said a hundred times, watching those two boosters come down and land simultaneously was, uh, the, the best thing I saw since the um, since the moon landing. That was the most impressive thing I've seen since the moon landing. Um, anyway, if somebody can get me the uh, the time, that'd be awesome. Um, so let's see. Uh, all right, um, Eric Blake again. Uh, did I make a decision to make S, uh, T, uh, STL, TSL longer? I did not make a conscious decision, but I remember we were usually under two hours, consistently under two hours, and somewhere around, I don't know, five episodes ago, we started to, you know, break the three-hour mark, and then we broke the four-hour mark. We've never done a show over three hours before, I think. So um, I think probably what I've done is I've just tried to, you know, cover more questions and and and, you know, this does go along the um, the time axis, so if you're if you're paying, uh, you know, ideally you pay a flat rate for this, and then you're not paying by the minute. Uh, okay, um, let's see, and we're back to Eric Blake again. Uh, hail Vectron Citizen, hail, hail Vectron. Um, by Vectron's Golden Claw, may the midterms make those who are betting on Republican victories in both houses a lot of dough. Agreed. Here's a laugh. Apparently, during the primaries this year, Democrats were making big donations to the campaigns of MAGA Republicans. Really? Amid Brandon and crew endlessly trashing MAGA Republicans as an existential threat to democracy? Well, this does not compute unless they're ridiculously confident that MAGA is unelectable. I would say that stupidity be the way to go on this one. Gotta say, if those MAGA Republicans happen to win en masse in November, I'm going to love to see those Dems explain what happened. So you all help get elected the very people you insisted were existential threats, huh? Uh, anyway, uh, what's your assessment of the situation? Uh, my assessment of the situation is that, um, boy, I, uh, 
I sure hope that's true. Wouldn't surprise me if it was true. It'd be kind of a version of Operation Chaos, right? It'd be kind of, you know, uh, let's get these people to vote for the unelected ones. Um, I have, uh, I have uh, so much concern about election integrity. I'm not going to go through that again, but I will say I'm beginning to feel like we are, we are really kind of at or past the point of, of cheating. I know that sounds like they can just keep cheating, but like I said many times now, you only get one sneak attack per war, and if you think that there are going to be um, another case like at the, was it State Farm or Allstate, you can never get that right, center where, um, oh, we're closing for the night. What Really? Why? Oh, we've decided to stop counting. We'll be back at 9 o'clock in the morning. You guys come back at 9 o'clock in the morning, and the two Republicans go home. No. Next time, uh, there's going to be um, 200 Republicans, and if they say we're uh, giving up counting, then we're going to say then we're staying here. We're going to stay here all night. So it'll be more difficult for them, I suspect. Uh, and then when you get the House and Senate, burn that rot out of the system. Last one is from uh, Trevor Duell. Posted my question at BillWhittle.com. That's a great website, by the way, if you haven't been there. Uh, let's see. So, well, good for you, man. You put a link into Facebook to get to the to the to the question, then I am, um, I am in. Let's see what we got. Uh, members. Forum. Stratosphere questions and more. God bless you. Let's get Bill in Animation Studio. God bless you. I swear I will get, I will give this the attention that it deserves. I know the timing was absolutely appalling and I just couldn't do anything about it. But thank you. Trevor Duell. Let me go back and see if I can find this guy. Merchandark. J.K. Masterson. Cody Fit. Jack R. Road Rider. Please repeat the other oh, we get Trevor Duell. Uh, hi, Bill. I have a bit of a conundrum. I'd be happy to help you with that if I knew what a conundrum was. Uh, and I do. That's what an, an educated American should know, uh, what a conundrum is. There, that'd be a fun one, actually, vocabulary. Here's some words that are not in common usage that, sh that or, or are that you need to know. You need to know what these words mean. Conundrum is one of them. Um, there's a job I'd like to apply for, but the application requires a personal written statement, quote, description of the candidate's contributions and skills related to promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion, unquote. Do I tell them what they want to hear, give it an honest try, or simply pass? Uh, Trevor, I would I would run away from that place as fast as I could. Uh, I'm, I know that we don't often have that luxury and that and that many times we have to do things that are unpleasant. A lot of times we have to work at places where we don't want to work and most of my life chronologically was going to work and only the last third of my vocational career was not work was fun but i would just run for the hills um i've, I've become a big fan of jt over on odin's men he's really interesting he's obviously a former military he's a former marine and he's very tough but at the same time he's extraordinarily fair and he's kind he's kind and considerate he really is and um, one of the things he says every now and then is he, he says, if I ever meet anybody who comes up to me and says, uh, hi, um, I'm Susan, my pronouns are she, her. He says, 
I just turn around and walk away. That's not somebody I want to spend my time with. I would do that. Um, at gig at UT, at UT Austin, I don't know if that's if that's you or not. Um, uh, sorry, broke college student. I can't answer that yet. I, I I just can't. I don't have time. It's a good question though. Um, can you um, can you can you put it in uh, next stratosphere lounge? We'll do um, we'll do. Uh, members next time and um and if you remind me i'll get to that first it's a big question and and, and frankly i don't know the debate you you told me what the debate is about but i, I haven't followed it so i don't think i could do much good right now anyway um all right well um yeah i would i would just get out of there um because to be honest with you trevor if they want this information from you up front you're gonna have to live every day there undercover and there's nothing that destroys a person rather than having to lie every day when they're fundamentally honest people. Uh, I would give you the same advice if you were a liberal trying to apply it at a conservative place, although it wouldn't bother them. Uh, I would just simply, I, I cannot imagine, uh, especially in this climate, by the way, when nobody can be found to go to work for any job anywhere, uh, I would say that, um, that you're just gonna be miserable there. Uh, I've gotten some advice from a number of uh, members. And obviously, I've been pretty stressed and in kind of a rough place for the last two, three months now. A lot of that stress has been relieved, but still, it's been rough. And um, and from a number of people, but especially a good friend of mine, uh, said, you know, it's it's really tough for you because when uh, Daily Wire left and everybody else left, you're the last Indian, uh, you know, out there in the woods, and everybody else has moved on to the um, you know to the place where the buffaloes still are. Uh, and and he's right. It is. Um, it's it's lonely out here. It'd be nice to go to work with somebody every day where you were knocking down the door and you had people who had your back and you had people who would, I don't know, check the microphone before the show or maybe make sure the camera's hooked up right or something like that. That's their job. That's what they do. They don't have to do the talking. They just make sure that the thing's ready to go. I've heard rumors that that is uh, possible to do. But y you. Um, you you would it, see the thing is you think okay well if I get past the 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 first hurdle and then I get to get the job then I don't have to worry about it anymore but I don't think it works that way. Um, during these uh, meetings of the uh, group of Hollywood conservatives, which I ran forty of them at least, um, the most common thing was seeing people in various stages of emotional distress talking about how they had to agree with things that they knew to be wrong, and in some cases evil, in order to not lose their job. I've seen stuntmen cry about that. That's an honest truth. I've seen, I've seen guys who are 45, 50 years old who, who, who fall off of 80-story you know, buildings and, and you know, they're riding a horse and they get hit by a branch, knocked off the back. Those guys, tough guys, with tears in their eyes, talking about having to sit there while everybody on the set is talking about how evil you know, uh, Trump is or Bush was or whatever the case may be. And it's like, and they're just filled with shame, you know, and you don't need that. Um, really, really don't need that. That's not, uh, not good for you, man. Um, I, I really think you should pass on that one. I don't see any good outcome from that. If you, 
if you lie and they find out about you, that's embarrassing. If, if you lie and they accept the lie and you work for them, that's also embarrassing and it's going to be miserable for you. I would keep your um, sanity and I'd keep your conscience clear and I would keep your fundamental happiness um, and get the hell out of there. Uh, so, Philio, since we got to get over the three hour mark, uh, what's the last great book you read and can recommend? Um, I don't know. Again, uh, I have to paging out of RAM. Have to page the hard drive. Let me let me check because I know there was one or two in there that I liked a lot recently. Sorry. Let's just check. I'm gonna. Uh, exclude anything about Stalin and anything about um, uh, Warhammer 40k. It's virtually everything I read is nonfiction here. Is there anything? I, I remember reading something not too long ago that was actually pretty good. Um, hang on. I will consult the... Oh, come on. I'll consult the uh, library. Here. Library, what do we got? Uh, I can actually uh, recommend something. I knew there was something that was a little off. Well, first of all, uh, Last Stand of the Tin Can Sailors is the story of um, Taffy Three, and that's one of the one of my favorite books of all time. That's just great. Um, I read uh, I read a book called uh, Raven about Jim Jones. I, uh, every now and then I'll get a hold of something that um, just grabs me, you know, just has my full attention. And especially if I don't have an external deadline or anything like that, I will oftentimes find out everything I can about that thing. I did that with Jack the Ripper and, and so on. And I went through a period of about a week or two where I just, uh, I just wanted to read everything I could about uh, Jim Jones and Jonestown and how he got there. Um, Hey, first time chat from uh, Settle Cougar. Howdy from Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, located furry patriot. There are some of us out here. Thank you for your zeal. All right. Um, Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, being of a certain age, uh, a thing I remember most about Lawrence, Kansas is that's where uh, the day after was set, right? That was where that thing that scared the living daylights out of, you know, 300 million people or whatever it was back then. Uh, it was, um, those of you not familiar with it, uh, the day after was a really important um, uh, TV movie about nuclear war. And uh, and I want to say, was it um, Jason Robards, I want to say? Um, and, uh, and it was basically about nuclear war and uh here we are in lawrence kansas and we're trying to hang on and it didn't go so well there was a there were three there was another one that preceded that an american one only thing i remember about it was that there was a nuclear detonation across a bay it came out before the day after and somewhere around the day after was a british version called threads and threads was really really scary really scary um day after oh somebody said that just as i said it in phil 42 said uh Excellent movie. Want something even more horrible? Watch the Brit version called Threads. Yeah, Threads was 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 pretty, pretty nasty. Um, but in any event, 
Um, uh, Eric Blake says the film was very important for Reagan and Gorbachev. It did. It woke up a lot of people to uh, what it would look like. And, you know, that's that's why the, nobody's heard of these Soviet murder pits. Nobody knows what Coloma is. Nobody knows Comanatra. Nobody knows about them because there's no pictures of them. Everyone's seen pictures of Auschwitz and, 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 and the ovens and the chimneys and the corpses being bulldozed into pits. Nobody saw that from the Soviet Union. Uh, you don't, you can know something but not feel something, and that's why pictures are so important. Um, anyway, that's that. Hey, look at that. Oh, 255.36. Uh, so I've got uh, four and a half, I've got four and a half minutes. I have to fill forward, of course. Oh, yeah. um, uh, let's see. What we're looking, we're going to take a, we're going to take a, Grab bag one. Um, I'm looking for something interesting. Interesting. <laughs> CP Tome says he, he got the U.S. government leaflet my father laughed at in the 60s on how to build a fallout shelter in the basement that looked like a tiki bar. Concrete block. Uh, corrugated steel sandbags. I would, um, I'd like to, I'd like to own a house that had a, that had a, a, a bomb shelter in the back. I just think it'd be an awesome party place, you know? I really would. Uh, which, uh, it was not, um, I forget the, the actual name, but the, the Steely Dance, uh, not, not Steely Dan, um, uh, mm, I'm really losing my memory fast here. I hope it's temporary. Um, Fagan, um, his album, uh, there was, uh, was it called What a Wonderful World? It was set in a bomb shelter. Yeah. Um, just a dag, just a dugout that my bed, that my dad built in case the Russians decide to push the button down, something like that. Uh, I don't know. I've often wondered if people could live underground. IGA, that's right. Or was it IGY? I think it was IGY. It was uh, it was Inter International Geophysical Year. I think. Who knows? Anyway, Donald Fagan was great. Um, uh, I don't know if it'd be possible to live underground. I do know that one of the one of the sharpest pieces of uh, satire ever made was the very end of Doctor Strangelove, where they're looking like there's going to be this nuclear Armageddon, and uh, Doctor Strangelove says, "Well, we have facilities, Mr. President, underground. Uh, only a small number of people would be admitted, of course, just highest levels of the government and the military services. And in order to increase the population, we would have to have a very large female to male." Uh, ratio when the females would have to be selected on the basis of their sexual attractiveness when their willingness and something along those lines and Buck Turgeon's eyes no not Buck Turgeon uh, yeah Buck Turgeon's eyes light up am I thinking no who is um, George C. Scott's character uh, I can't remember 
Uh, anyway, uh, that was a that was a that was a great movie. When, when George C. Scott's talking about the B fifty two raid there, and and the president was it was it Buck Turgid's? Um Yeah, I got it right by accident. Um, and Mervyn Muffley was that the name of the president or something? Uh, General Kenny, can this can this B fifty two can this bomber get through? Well, Mr. President, if the guy's good, now if he's really good. You can get that baby right there on the deck, and you're flying so low, you're frying chickens in the exhaust. Yeah, you can get through. So jacked about it, you know. That's just just great. Just great. All right. Oh, my God, we have 35 seconds. So that just give us enough time to say, hey, this show's made possible by the members at BillWhittle.com, who uh, continually keep this uh, rodeo going, uh, and for which we are extraordinarily grateful, as always. Um, we'll be back on Monday night. Uh, for Stratosphere Studios. And then Tuesday through the following Monday, I'm recording at 8 o'clock in the morning every day. So that might make me um, miss Stratosphere Lounge on Thursday and conceivably even Stratosphere Studio the following Monday. But that will be because I am at an 8 o'clock call, hour in makeup and, and stuff in costume, and then recording two episodes of the uh, of the Cold War a day, and those episodes are an hour long. It's given the fact that you don't get it all in one take. It's, it's going to be a bit of work. So um, that'll do it. All right. Well, great to see everybody. And hey, we got to like 290 viewers on uh, YouTube Live, which was great. Um, and uh, somebody told me the last Stratosphere Lounge didn't make it. I, I re-uploaded it. It's possible I didn't click the right button. In any event, I will check on that. But this is going up to YouTube. And uh, and they can censor away. I don't care anymore. We'll see. All right. Um, that'll do it. Uh, thanks again for joining us. And, uh, and we'll see you next time right here on your very own Stratosphere Lounge.